0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalog, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have been known to give dire warnings that the sky is falling, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm an overconfident lion cub lolloping towards the elephant graveyard with nary a care in the world, as we watch through 61 films and counting imparting words of wisdom along the way is a learned bird who keeps me on the right side of the tracks in all animation-centric pursuits, an academic who manages to say, do this, be there, stop that, and see here, and actually make it fun. I am, of course, talking about Mr. Banana Beak himself, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam <laughs> Mr. Banana beak Zazu himself how are you doing Yeah
1: that was that was a good one Yeah you like <laughs> that one
0: Yeah yeah cuz with these intros
1: I always think like is he going to make me sound too smart and important like is he gonna make me Rafiki in this like no Zazu that's about where it's at I think that's about the right level yeah, yeah
0: so I'm happy with that and Zazu's a dude we all like Zazu yeah okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> right <laughs> we all come into this so and Sam this, this is our first recording of the new year you'll have heard listeners our Aladdin episode which as we've said many times we recorded that back in October that was a little while ago This is our first episode that we're recording, Sam, since our special episodes with Griffin Newman for a Goofy movie and with Brian Herring for a Muppet Christmas Carol. What an amazing time that was. It feels good to be back, right? 2023. This is our year, Sam. I don't know in what sense. (laughs) 2023. It's our year of continuing to record the podcast. Hopefully less sporadically.
1: Yeah, that's it. It's our year of recording the podcast and releasing it at regular intervals. That's the New Year's resolution.
0: So we are here to talk about The Lion King. Cannot wait for this. And we are once again joined by a very special guest. One who's been waiting a long, long, long time to make his Disney Disneyversity debut. So back when we started the podcast, I asked this guy if he'd want to join us at some point in the show... And the film he immediately picked was The Lion King, undeterred by the fact that it was going to take us literally years for us to get there. But now the day has finally come. He's a much-in-demand journalist, podcaster, Q&A host, and a man who appears at literally every single film screening in the land. He's a contributing editor at Empire Magazine, an Empire podcast regular, the co-host of the Fade to Black podcast. Everything the light touches is his. Welcome at last. Amon Warman. I was willing to wait for it. (laughs) I was willing to wait for it. It's on Disney Plus, so we will allow the Hamilton reference. (laughs) Hello,
2: everyone. That was an amazing intro. Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us at last. So, you named this one from the off. Like, straight up, I was like, Amon, we've got to get you on the podcast at some point. Like, what film do you want to do? And immediately, there was like not even a second of hesitation. The Lion King was the one that you picked. I mean, it had to be, but why did it have to be?
2: (laughs) There's a lot of different reasons I can say. And I think all of this contributed to my picking this in some respect, in terms of the beautiful animation, the incredible voice work, the songs, which are immense, all time iconic, great. The moments, the story, all of that played a role for sure. This is by the way, not not just one of my favorite Disney animated films, it's my favorite Disney animated film, one of my favorite films of all time period, like it might be top 10 for me. But for me, I think because of me growing up with this film and how much it brought the family together as a household when I was growing up, the memories that are tied, not just with the quality of the film, but to those things is why The Lion King was the first movie out of my mouth when you asked me that question.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a banger on so many levels and appropriate because it's a film about family, about legacy, the, the whole thread of Mufasa and Simba. We're going to get into all of that, but it makes sense that this is a film that it works for everybody as a family, but it's so good to watch as a family and have your relationship to this film change over time. Has that been the case for you?
2: To a degree, Mufasa's death actually hits me harder now Wait, what Mufasa dies down. what <laughs> no! Spoiler. you know as you grow up and progress and go on your own journey in life there's certain lessons you learn in the doing of that and there are certain lessons in this film that I'm sure we're going to get to that are very universal but they're no less heartfelt and very effectively communicated and As you grow up and gain a greater understanding about how films work and how films are put together, your appreciation for stuff like that deepens. So that has definitely been the case for me.
0: It is, as they say, the circle of life. And I imagine, I mean, you, Sam, and I are all around the same age, so we all grew up on this movie. I imagine, in terms of the questions that I ask all of our guests, which of the Disney films that you grew up on, The Lion King, big one for you as a kid. What else was a big Disney film for you growing up?
2: There were a few. So The Little Mermaid, for sure. Uh, Poor Unfortunate Souls is a banger. Um, (laughs) Excited to to hear that. This year, the live action version. Uh, Little Mermaid, for sure. Aladdin. Beauty and the Beast. The Aristocats. Sword in the Stone. Uh, which I also requested But I got picked to the post Which is fine It's fine um, No I think it was Helen O'Hara actually did a great job
0: And I think you would have Struggled with the fact That one of the films That we did not like That much on this podcast One of the few films That we've struggled with <laughs> Is The Sword in the Stone
2: Wow Oh that's interesting <laughs> and We've had many
0: people Get in touch with us Angry at the fact That we didn't love Sword in the Stone So you you would have been Joining them. <laughs>
2: Uh, but yeah, all of those ones I grew up with a lot, but all of those films are great in their own regard, but none of them really Resonated like the Lion King did especially when it came to family watches like that's something my mum was still sort of You know watch with a smile on her face right now If I had to put that on she'd be you know signal onto to the circle of life and doing all the things so yeah the Lion King, for sure, talent above all of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, rewatching this in the last couple of days has been uh, just a wonderful thing. I loved rewatching this so much. This was huge for us as kids, right?
1: Yeah, enormous. I mean, it was it was the biggest. Well, you know, we'll get to it. But commercially, it did the best out of any of these movies, and that's not something I really noticed actively when I was a kid. But it obviously fed into it. Like the Lion King was everywhere for years. I. Was born a year and a half before this movie came out. So I was like not conscious of this movie being released when it was released. But when I was growing up and getting into Disney movies properly, like sort of 1995 onwards, this movie was still huge and the merchandise was still everywhere and the songs were still everywhere and there was still no escape in it. So it really did follow me throughout my whole childhood and never really went away as a phenomenon and then the sequels came out and everything it was ubiquitous yeah yeah i
0: don't know if this is just our vantage points as being kids through that time but i also feel like that kind of never went away like the characters have never disappeared the songs have never disappeared if you go into the disney shop if you're listening to disney compilation albums like right up front you're gonna get hakuna matata on there you're gonna be able to go and get your simba plush It just feels like I think it goes beyond our perspective as kids of that era that this film was just crazy huge and continued to be a massive cultural force for years and years and years. So this was a huge film for all of us as kids. But Amon, what are the Disney films that mean a lot to you now? Which are the ones that you've seen later in life, either more recent films or older classics that you've kind of seen in the intervening years that mean a lot to you now?
2: Zootopia is one that definitely springs to mind. I love that film. Uh, Or Zootropolis, depending on where you are.
0: I I still don't know which one the British title is. I just say both in quick succession and
1: hope that nobody notices. Ours is Zootropolis, and you can remember it because it's worse.
2: (laughs) I really liked Big Hero Six. Yeah. Uh, is something that I still do from time to time. Uh, so
0: <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Big A-Max vibes coming from both of you right now. Yeah, oh
2: yeah.
1: fa-la-la-la-la-la. man, that's a part of a culture now that's never going away.
2: <laughs> There's one which I didn't say in terms of the Disney films that I grew up with that I just remembered: Hercules. Oh, bang of a film. I love that film. I actually did an Empire column on it last year because the muses in that film, I love them so much. And I dedicated pretty much an entire column just to that. Um, The way in which they drive the story, but with fantastic songs, beautiful lyrics, and the vibrancy of the muses and the different personalities they all have and the way they bounce off each other. There was one video I captured when the family home, I put on Hercules, and they were doing the Zero to Hero song and literally all the family were in to sit room just laughing and dancing and clapping along to it. Like a lot of video. It's incredible. And that was like, you know, fairly recent too. But that just goes to show you the power of you know, growing up with that film. So that one especially as well. I liked Frozen. I didn't love it in the way the entire world did to that degree, but I really... Enjoyed it and I think the let it go song is is still a banger.
0: I know people were probably tired and sick of it by now I'm not one of those people my appreciation for that song continues to grow. Like, I kind of didn't get Let It Go at first. Well, obviously we'll get there when we oh. do Frozen properly. But like, I kind of get Let It Go more now than I think I did at the time. Interesting.
1: It's very much the Lion King of its day. <laughs> that movie. It was It was huge. It's still around. It's still inescapable. All of these movies are big. All of these movies from this era that we're looking at are big. Lots of the movies from this like last 10 years era have been very big. But like, Frozen, The Lion King, they feel like real pinnacles like real cultural moments in a way that the others don't
2: i liked ryan the last dragon didn't sort of all the way fall in love with it but there was a lot of things that i appreciated about that movie and of course i can't be me this song to mention it i'm sure ben has been internally screaming at me for the last two minutes but *Encanto* yes. <laughs> is also another one which i really enjoyed
0: amazing yeah you can't escape the lin-manuel love yeah okay well that is enough from us We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, we're delving into the circle of life with 1994's The Lion King. Right then, Sam. It seems like everybody in the world saw this movie. We've seen it over and over and over. But in case anybody out there has not seen The Lion King for whatever reason, how are you listening to this podcast if you've not seen The Lion King? If you don't know the plot, Sam, get us up to speed.
1: Simba is a young lion cub destined to inherit the mantle of king from his father Mufasa. When his evil uncle Scar conspires to kill Mufasa and take the crown, Simba grows up in exile and denial before finally accepting his destiny and deciding to take back what's his. That was quite succinct,
0: wasn't it? Yeah, that was pretty pretty <laughs> swift. You did a great job of tying all of that plot in. So this is, as we're going to get into shortly, Kind of a retelling of Hamlet, but with lions. Hamlet with lions. That is the deal. But we are on this insane run of Disney films at the moment. This is like peak renaissance. We're coming off the back of The Little Mermaid. Rescue down under. Beauty and the Beast. Aladdin. And that leads us to The Lion King, this incredible run. There was a slightly longer wait for this one because all of those previous films came out at one-year intervals. There was no Disney film in 1993. They skipped straight to 1994 for The Lion King. So was this one just an especially big undertaking? You know, not
1: necessarily. Like, some aspects of it were. Like, The Wildebeest Chase, which we'll get on to, that was, like, a really big technical undertaking that took... Basically, the movie's entire production cycle, they were working on that scene in the background, or like one unit was working on that scene. But the main reason why this took a little bit longer to come out was because there was a little bit of a, not a schism going on at the studio, but there was things going on at the studio, so... We've said that all of those previous movies did basically come out at one-year intervals, but now, after the huge success of Beauty and the Beast, that's when Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner really commit to we are going to bring out a movie every single year. And to do that, the animation department that worked on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin was split and put to work on separate projects so that we can cycle them. Well, These guys will do a movie that will come out this year, and then these guys will be working on a movie that will come out the following year. So, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, those were the last films on which all of the genius Renaissance-era artists worked together. And the story goes that... So this movie was in production simultaneously with Pocahontas, and the way it's often told is that... Pocahontas that had the A-team, like the best guys, the top top animators were put on Pocahontas and the Lion King had the B-team. And that's because Pocahontas was seen as the more prestigious project, especially by Katzenberg. We'll talk about it more in the next episode, but Beauty and the Beast got so close to winning the Best Picture Oscar. Pocahontas was Katzenberg's attempt to really clinch that. It's a big epic story based very loosely on American history, this is the kind of movie that wins Oscars when it's made in live action. All we're going to do is make it an animation and it's going to be a shoe in So Katzenberg was pitching that as the prestigious project. A lot of the big-time animators chose to work on it for that reason. So another version of this story is that the directors of each movie held wine and cheese parties to show off the storyboards and the concept art to try and attract the animators. And in that context, most of them chose to work on Pocahontas. But either way, The Lion King was kind of seen as the lesser movie. A slightly weirder, more out there concept maybe. A less surefire hit. Hamlet with lions, Elton John pop songs doesn't necessarily scream like obvious success i guess
0: yeah let's get into that so so many of the disney films we've covered that are based on something they're either based on existing novels or they're based on fairy tales this feels like the first time we've had something different the plot itself is taken from hamlet but they've brought in the idea of using lions to tell that story to put it in a different context how did the lion king come to be as an idea Well, the pitch was never
1: Hamlet with lions, to be clear. Like, that was never how it was conceived, how it was described. The origin of the story is disputed. But the original idea is usually dated to 1988, and it was actually described as Bambi in Africa.
0: Because this is massively Bambi, like all the stuff with the Circle of Life, when we talk about kind of a coming-of-age story where the opening shot mirrors the ending shot, and they start off as a kid and they end up as the dad, that's Bambi.
1: Right, yeah. I want to maybe get into some of the comparisons between those two films more closely down the line, because I do think it's fascinating. But yeah, it was Bambi in Africa, that was the idea. And There's a bit of contention around who came up with that idea. One is it was an animation exec, like a lower level exec, called Charlie Fink. Excellent name.
0: Also the name of the frontman from Noah and the Whale. Weirdly. Don't think it's the same person. Is
1: that true? Yeah. The one who went out with Laura Marling? Yeah. Oh good okay. time. Interesting. Uh, sorry, we're <laughs> getting really off track. <laughs> I don't think anyone predicted Laura Marling was gonna get mentioned <laughs> on this Lion King podcast. So it was either Charlie Fink or it was Katzenberg himself. And realistically I think it was probably Charlie Fink. Katzenberg has given a lot of interviews After the fact, claiming that this movie was his baby. That was a really personal project. It was inspired, he says, by his own life. He's told various stories about how it was inspired by when he used to work as a runner for a corrupt politician. What? And I guess that's meant to be Scar or something, but it's like his own coming of age story. This feels very retrospective. This feels (laughs) like it's been said in hindsight to try and claim this is his project. And a lot of these interviews were given after or during high-profile lawsuits over his right to a share of the film's profits, which we'll also get to eventually when we talk about Katzenbexit, which is what I call it when Katzenberg... No, Brexit. that's much better, isn't it? It doesn't matter. We'll get to it eventually. <laughs> but, you know, there are reports, as I've said, from the film's early production of him being quite dismissive of the project, so I don't think this was his idea, this was the passion project that he's described it as yeah so the screenplay went through many drafts by many writers from that original bambi in africa pitch working titles included king of the jungle king of the beasts and king of the kalahari
0: all terrible titles right to bin them (laughs) off yep
1: i mean it's not set in the jungle that's why i had to get rid of that one king of the jungle that's an immediate no-go So Irene Mechie and Jonathan Roberts are credited with the final screenplay, along with Linda Wolverton, who wrote Beauty and the Beast. Interesting footnote that we are seeing more women in prominent creative roles at the studios, starting with Wolverton on Beauty and the Beast. So the story, what it was actually going to be, developed and evolved quite a lot over time. We'll maybe talk about some early examples of what it was going to be and Discarded. But Eventually, when they realized what they were doing, it was kind of noted, oh, this is Hamlet. They didn't know that when they were starting out, it kind of turned into Hamlet organically. And when they realized that, they started incorporating more Shakespearean elements as inspiration. Things like Scar being Mufasa's brother and Mufasa returning as a ghost were added quite late in production after that similarity had been realised. And once they realised the similarities, they tried to get as much Hamlet in there as they could without it being forced.
0: Because that's already an interesting element, right? That this is accidentally or not basically a retelling of Hamlet with lions. Then you go... Let's get Elton John to do the music. Like, he's a huge name. We've had Alan Menken and Howard Ashman doing lots of the music for these last couple of films that we've discussed. But this is like a big pop artist, a big chart artist, collaborating with Tim Rice, who wrote some stuff on Aladdin as well. How does Elton John get into this mix? So
1: Tim Rice was the first element in place. He had worked with them on Aladdin. And Elton John was not the first big pop act that tim rice suggested as a collaborator for this movie they asked tim rice who he wanted to work with and he said i want to do this with benny and beyond
0: (gasps) what we could have had like abba lion king yeah talking about a fork in the road (laughs) i would never want to trade off the songs from the lion king we're going to talk about them when we talk about the film the music in this film is incredible but I, i can't help but imagine what abba's lion king would have been oh my god (laughs) it's a real yeah it's a real sliding
1: doors moment like what we could have had i would like could we do that now while benny and Bjorn are like still with us still working still writing can we get them to like do what they think they would have done I don't know, I I think that should happen, maybe we can pull some
0: strings. The closest we can do (laughs) is go to a Saturday afternoon matinee of the Lion King theatre show in London, and then go to the evening show of Abba Voyage, (laughs) and then whatever our dreams conjure (laughs) that evening, that is the closest we're ever going to get to Abba's Lion King, oh my god.
1: <laughs> so Benny and
0: Beyond didn't
1: fancy it, unfortunately. So Tim Rice's next suggestion was Elton John. David Gethin, who was a friend of Jeffrey Katzenberg's, who was a music mogul who'd worked with Elton John in the past, set it up. He was also the guy who put Katzenberg in touch with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken because he produced Little Shop of Horrors too. So Gethin is actually a very influential guy who would continue to be influential in the process of Brexit. So we'll probably get a little bit of Geffen later on. But we also, I think, need to acknowledge the score for this movie. I'm on. you're a bit of a score guy, right? <laughs> if that feels like something you'd be interested <laughs> in chatting about. So, like, I don't think a lot of people know this is a Hans Zimmer score. It's not really what you think of when you think of Hans Zimmer.
2: No, I mean, maybe it's because I'm such a massive Hans Zimmer fan. And so... I remind people that this is a hard seven score any chance that I get, uh, but yes, this score is absolutely phenomenal. I'm sure we'll get to it in more detail in a second, but King of Pride Rock is a track that always, always gives me chills. And then when you play it with the actual visuals of what's going on in that moment, it's really something special. Uh, And when you add in Zimmer's orchestration and then add in the African core voices, which this film does at multiple points, it just bolsters everything and augments everything and helps certain moments land with even more importance. So yeah, this is a top five Hans Zimmer score for me. I do not say that lightly. But it is that good.
1: Yeah, it was a South African musician called Lebo M who right. wrote and arranged the choral chant. So we should shout him out as well. That's like a really important part of the soundscape of this film, as you mentioned. So I would say four important names crafting the oral landscape of this movie. And that is such a huge part of what this movie is. Like all Disney musicals, like the music is important, but it's so deeply intertwined with the fabric of this film in, in this particular instance and
0: such an unlikely combination of people it's sort of shouldn't work the fact that it does work and that it's in- as incredible as it is this kind of incredible orchestral master in hans zimmer a sort of pop giant in elton john the amazing choral arrangements as you say was it lebo m and tim rice on lyrics what a squad you know <laughs> assemble them again do it again but let's go into some of the other creatives here the directors Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff i don't know if we've encountered these names before so you said it was kind of the b team working on this film so who were these guys and and where did they come from
1: yeah i don't think we'll have mentioned their names we've encountered their work so Roger Allers was head of story on beauty and the beast And Rob Minkoff was a director. He directed the Roger Rabbit short cartoons, like the theatrical shorts that followed up that movie. He also dabbled in songwriting. He wrote Good Company, the worst song in Oliver and Company. (laughs) So (laughs) swings and roundabouts in that guy's career. So yeah, they brought together these two guys who, well, at least in Allah's case, hadn't had loads of experience directing, but I think they played to each other's strengths. Didn't have much of an impact. Like considering this was the biggest Disney movie Ever and would be for a long long time they didn't really contribute much to any of the other films in the Disney canon Roger Allers contributed he, he like started off as the director of Kingdom of the Sun which is the movie that would later become Emperor's New Groove And then he went to Sony where he directed Open Season, terrible movie. And Rob Minkoff moved into live action where he made Stuart Little and Ben a film. We're both big fans of the Eddie Murphy
0: Haunted Mansion movie. Right, I knew I recognised that name. We watched that just the other day (laughs) after Halloween for no reason. So those are the directors, Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff. There's one last thing before we get into the film itself, another name that comes up at the end of the film that this is dedicated to Frank Wells. Is that a name we've come across in the podcast so far?
1: Yeah, I'm sure I will have mentioned him because he joined Disney with Eisner and Katzenberg during that big takeover around the time of the Black Cauldron. His title was president of the company so he was sort of parallel to Eisner he was sort of like the left brain of the operation which is a similar relationship that Walt and Roy Disney had like Eisner was more the creative guy and Wells was like the operations guy the finance guy the logical guy uh, that's that's usually how their relationship is described and Wells died in a tragic helicopter crash oh a few months before this movie came out and this had a huge impact even though he didn't work directly with the animation studio which is why we haven't talked about him loads this had a huge impact on the disney company again another big factor in cats and brexit so we will i think i prefer cats and bexit i don't know we'll figure it out as we go and uh so we, we will kind of follow up on the aftermath of his passing but yeah very sad very tragic a real fulcrum point in the history of the studio and fitting that this film is dedicated to him
0: Amazing. Right, so I feel like the table has been set. We have this absolute banquet of a film laid out in front of us. A banquet of grubs, delicious, wiggling grubs. <laughs> Should we go to Pride Rock? Should we get stuck into The Lion King? Yes, please. Let's do
1: it. Woohoo!
0: I don't know where that came
1: from. <laughs> You're keeping that in? Yeah, that's saying it. Why not? <laughs> it's Ben's signature catchphrase. <laughs>
0: So often, we kick off these discussions obviously by talking about the opening of the film. And I'm just going to lay a flag right now and say I think the opening of The Lion King is the best opening of any Disney film we have discussed so far. That includes the incredible tracking shots in Bambi, the great but kind of horrifying scary opening to The Fox and the Hound, That includes the Little Mermaid and the Fathoms Below song. The opening of The Lion King, right? The way that the music kicks in, the red rising sun, all of the animals standing up is just absolutely magnificent. There is something about the warmth and the openness and the excitement, the vibrancy of this film that is just there right from the opening seconds. Are we all in agreement on that? Sam, do you agree... Where do you stand on this being the best opening to any Disney film?
1: I'm racking my brain. I think it (laughs) probably has to be. I'm running over stuff in my head. I can't think. Because the contender that leaps to mind would be Beauty and the Beast, but actually, Belle isn't the opening of that film. You've got like the overture of the prologue, which is still really good, but not on the level of the circle of life like if bell was how that movie opened then it might be a contender but i think you're probably right i mean i think when this piece of animation was finished and shown to relevant people to executives to whoever that's when they realized that this was not the b movie this was (laughs) like this was the movie this was maybe the movie ever and the original trailer for this movie was just Mm -hmm. this song They just showed this thing, and it was like, Look at what we've done. Look at it. That's all you need. What's it about? Doesn't matter. Circle of Life. Look at the animals. Look at the sunset. Listen to the music. Incredible.
2: Yep. Fully agree with you. I think the stiffest competition Circle of Life would face would probably be the Gospel Truth in Hercules, which is a banger of proportions. I truly believe the Gospel Truth is a banger. It does not come close to what they do with The Lion King. When you talk about visual storytelling, when the phrase visual storytelling in the book of movie phrases is written a screenshot from the circle of life is what you're going to put right next to it. Because my gosh, the fact that it can convey such a sense of place and importance with never a line of dialogue is really, really special. So I love that. I love how iconic it feels. I love the animation. In so many respects, the lighting on Rafiki as he's introduced in the scene is one such thing. When he breaks the fruit, iconic imagery, the, of course, lifting of Simba, proclaiming him to the rest of Pride Rock is an iconic thing. (laughs) By the way, we can't mention the Lion King without mentioning a certain gift which you should try hard to avoid unless you are actually going for it, which is the gif where they throw Simba off the cliff. Yeah,
0: Yeah. (laughs) if you see that gif shared from the Disneyversity account, that is an accident. We didn't mean to share the version (laughs) where Rafiki holds Simba to the sky and chucks him off the edge of the cliff. We don't condone that version. Yeah, I want to pick up on something specific you mentioned there, which is the light. When I was Mm. watching this again, the lighting in these shots is absolutely stunning. I think the sense of nature, the sense of place, Sam, we're going to talk about Bambi a lot in this episode, as we said. So much of Bambi is situating you in the forest. This situating you in the plains of Africa, somewhere in Africa, just generically Africa. Obviously, every African country is very different, but they don't make any kind of specific reference, I don't think, to where in Africa this is supposed to be. But the African plains that they're presenting us with here The way that they are lit, the way that the sky looks, the way that it bounces off the water, the way that it makes the grass so lush and green. I was just so swallowed in by the lush, bounteous nature here, let alone bringing in all the animals. I want to ask, does anybody have a favorite animal? Because the tiny giraffe is so cute. I find it very, very satisfying, the line of (laughs) ants with all the leaves in their mouths, just seeing them doing their thing. That's just like etched in my brain from childhood.
1: There's some really ugly birds early on, <laughs> some really messed up, like, I don't know what you call them, like, whatever turkeys have on the heads, but more of that. Giblets? Some really...
0: Oh no, giblets <laughs> are the neck bits.
1: I thought giblets were, like, bits. I thought giblets were, like, your inner bits. I might be wrong about that. Gizzards? Gizzards. Is that a gizzard? Gizzards. <laughs> Uh, Look, okay, we are not—we're not ornithologists, we're not zoologists. (laughs) If we were, we could probably narrow this down in terms of its geographical location a bit better. I will say, a lot of the language in the movie is Swahili. A lot of the touchstones are Swahili, so that's bringing us to like East Africa, like Kenya, Mozambique, Tanzania kind of area that's where i would place it speaking from no position of authority whatsoever yeah other good animals i like the ants as well i think it's really cool that we see the ants and it's like oh this is every animal every animal worships mafasa for some reason (laughs) i want to get into that as well into the politics of what's going on in animal society but from the ants to the elephants and that little shot of the tiny ants all scurrying along to try and make this baptism which is i guess what it is that's really cool. Amon, favourite animals?
2: I'm going to go with the giraffe for sure. There's something that's just regal about the giraffe. And you mentioned you know, people following Mufasa for some reason. We don't explicitly know what that reason is at that point in the movie, but you feel that it's right just because of the imagery, the majesticness of which Mufasa is introduced as they go into the first big iteration of it. it's the circle of life. The drums kick off, there's a boom, 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 boom. And then I think Zazu is flying towards Mufasa as we get this glorious shot of Pride Rock. And then Mufasa is there, and then Zazu bows. He's like, okay, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what his name is. I don't know sort of how he puts him, but this guy is a big deal. And I get why, just because of the imagery. And I, I love that. The regality the of this piece is something which I would be coming back to as this podcast goes on, because it's something that I feel at multiple points in the movie.
1: I mean, that's where the visual storytelling comes in, right? Like, we do not need to fully understand, and perhaps may never fully understand what this culture (laughs) is or how it works or why it works, but this sells it as an idea. This sequence, this song lets us know what we are in for, what kind of world we're entering into in, in a really succinct, but also really beautiful and moving way. And a lot of that is, like Ben was saying, the lighting, it's the effects animation. I want to make that point, because the character animation in this movie is great, but what makes this movie feel really epic and really special are the environments and the effects. And that's not really been the case, I don't think, since the days of like Pinocchio, Fantasia, Bambi. Those are three movies where, those three really early films, where the effects and the environments really stand out, arguably above the character animation. And when you think about those movies, you're probably thinking about the effects as much as the characters. And The Lion King, it's like really the case there. It gives it this sweeping scale. So
0: when you're saying effects, animation, in relation to the Circle of Life sequence... Beyond the lighting, what sort of things are you talking about? What things should we be looking out for there?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, every time we see, like, a reflection, every time... Like, when the focus shifts in that and sequence, I would say that falls under the raiment of effects animation. Everything that's going on in the sky, the sunset... Little moment, but the little juice... The little juice that Rafiki (laughs) spreads around on Simba's head. Oh my god, I get obsessed with that as a
0: kid. Like the sensation of him cracking open whatever that fruit is and the thumb across the head. There's something so tactile about that. It's unreal.
1: Absolutely. Later on when he's got the the drawing of the baby Simba on his wall and he draws him a little juice mane. Gives him a little
0: (laughs) painted mane. Beautiful. Juicy mane. (laughs) that's my input there that's the level of critique you get from me on this podcast just before we finish on circle of life i just want to highlight if we're talking about how this sets up mufasa and sets up pride rock as a place and the tone of the film the thing that i love is that yes it is epic it is huge but it is as i said right at the start it's warm this could easily feel imposing or dangerous or like exciting but scary and it does not feel scary i don't know if it's i guess partly a combination of the music is actually very mellow you have that kind of big piercing cry to start it off which is a like call to attention but from there when the song gets into it it's so mellow and so luxurious you can just bask in it and that combined with the hazy lighting and the gorgeous colours of the sky it feels like this joyous occasion like you're getting a window into this beautiful incredible exciting moment that just makes you feel warm and so good I think it does an impressive job of not feeling scary
2: I put a lot of that down to the music honestly the visuals are of course incredible but the music knows when to go small and knows when to go big. Because it has that initial opening refrain as the circle of life, and it means it's all as Zazu is flowing over to Mufasa. Then, as we zero in on Rafiki and Simba and that baptism, there's just like a mellow flute uh, with a melody that's playing. And it's relatively, I'm not gonna say quiet, you can hear it in the mix, but they've made room for what the story is doing visually in that moment. And then as the baptism is done and Rafiki carries Simba to the cliff in order to proclaim him as the next newborn you know, king, the music kicks up again. It's joy as the animal's going crazy. It's This is a special moment. And you feel all of that coming through. Again, no dialogue. Incredible.
0: And young Simba, baby Simba, absolutely adorable. We have this incredible... Basically, a crane shot. Obviously, it's all created through animation and a good amount of 3D animation in this one as well. But we sort of get a 3D crane shot around Simba as he's being held aloft and that heavenly light is coming down. Absolutely beautiful. And the moment where I think they knew, they were just onto the amazing, amazingness. <laughs> uh, I'm trying not to swear. <laughs> they were just absolutely on another level. Is when everything cuts out and we get the title card with that whoom. Mm. Yeah. Everything cuts out. <laughs> Boom. The Lion King. And you just sit there in yeah. your seat and you're like, Yes, I'm gonna go wherever you wanna take me for the next eighty minutes. Please bring me along with I you.
2: I can only imagine what it must have felt like watching the trailer for this in nineteen ninety three. like <laughs> I mean, like, I want to watch this film now. Gosh, yeah, it's it's epic, epic. Loved
1: it. Yeah, like if if I see that in front of like whatever crappy live action (laughs) Disney movie they were probably putting it in front of at the time, I'm going home, man. I don't want to watch. I don't want to watch like 102 Dalmatians or whatever. That's much too late.
0: (laughs) That's gonna bother you. I can tell how much that's gonna bother you.
1: Yeah, uh, (laughs) cut that out. Uh, I don't want to watch this. I'm gonna go. Home and just think about what the Lion King might be. Homeward Bound Two. I don't want to watch Homeward Bound Two. Oh. <laughs> That's a more chronologically accurate movie. Okay,
0: you can continue. So from there, we're going to come back to Scar a little bit later down the line. I think it's interesting that beyond that opening circle of life sequence, actually the start of the film is with Scar. We'll come to that. But for now, I just want to talk about this opening suite of the story. Really of Young Simba, lolloping around the Pride Lands, being a little bit of a cocky little idiot. We love Simba, but Simba annoyed me a bit on this rewatch because he was just... (laughs) His self-belief and overconfidence. Maybe we all need a bit of that, but he didn't need that much (laughs) overconfidence. But yeah, there is again, I think, that continuing warmth that the circle of life sequence generates that brings you through into this whole section where Simba is a kid, we see what his life is like, and we see that pride rock seems like a pretty nice place to live.
2: Yeah. Well, that's when you first begin to realize that the songs are not just these musical interludes to break up the story. The songs have importance in the story it's telling circle of life is something we just introduced to in that opening song within the first sort of 20 minutes or so we get to understand what that actually means because of what Mufasa is saying and how he's educating his son and a large theme of this movie is about responsibility with young simba at the start of this movie he is not really understanding that he thinks being king is going to be the coolest thing ever he doesn't even realize that in order for him to be king his father has to die That is not something that has dawned on him at all he just thinks it's going to be the coolest gig ever and i get why he would annoy you to a degree i think for me at this point having sort of seen and understood the story for so long it's not i guess my favorite part of the story i think as simba grows up and has those really big moments and starts to understand things that's probably my favorite chunk of this but i appreciate where simba is on his journey at this point in time and how the film circles back to some of the stuff that he learns in that opening suite, I think is very clever.
0: I think it does a great job, intentionally, of showing how naive Simba is. I think it does a lovely job of allowing you Mm -hmm. to feel the warmth of a childhood under the might of Mufasa. He's keeping everything in check. He's keeping everything kind of in line. And that Simba gets to grow up in this very safe environment, not knowing the true danger that's out there. But we get these little flashes of it. Obviously, in the interactions between Scar and young Simba and the machinations that he's putting into place. But also these little mentions of, ooh, there's hyenas in the Pride Lands. There's like on the boundaries of this safe place, there is some really dangerous stuff that he's going to have to encounter when the time comes.
1: And therein, we find maybe one of the kind of political issues that I have with this movie great movie perfect movie but like it's pretty dicey when you start breaking it down and like the core of that is really the hyenas and what the hyenas are like when Mufasa finds out that there are hyenas in the pride lands oh okay playtime over I am gone I've gone to sort out this encroaching hyena problem it's serious business so like you were saying Ben it's it's pretty nice to live in the pride lands if you are a lion otherwise <laughs> You have to fit into this idea. Like, the circle of life, that's a lion idea. It feels like the circle of life is what the lions have come up with to convince themselves that what they do is okay and to convince the other animals to let themselves get eaten by the lions. So the circle of life at its heart is this idea that, like, okay, the lions eat the antelope, but then the... Lions die and then they fertilize the grass and then the antelope eat the grass and it's the circle of life and that's a perfect device for reconciling the obvious moral issues that emerge around Predation in any fictional world populated by anthropomorphic animals But it creates trouble and moral questions in light of the fact that they are anthropomorphized and therefore they are politicized and I think that's an interesting difference between this and Bambi by the way Those animals in Bambi aren't as anthropomorphized as the animals in this movie Like they don't have like a culture in in the same way They don't have a political system in the same way that the animals in this movie do or at least it's not focused on that much and I think it's interesting because when we deal with these animals as people, we'll have to deal with what the circle of life means for these animals as people. So this logic justifies, apparently, the segregation and criminalization of the hyenas. Like, they are a threat to the circle of life because they are, like, poachers. They are scavengers. They don't participate in the same way that the lions do. So if we remove this idea from the context of the animal kingdom... This idea that the ruling class are justified in living off of a subservient class or subservient classes because they are a perpetually renewable resource? This is just the natural order of things? This society's existing structures are correct and if its rulers are usurped by undesirables like the hyenas, the natural order will collapse into chaos. And that's why Scar's army are hyenas in this movie and not lions, right? Because if it was lions that's just lions still that doesn't interrupt the circle of life but because it's hyenas because it's different people from outside that interrupts this like big mythic circle of life which is just a justification for how they live how do people feel about this idea (laughs) so what you're saying
0: is that it creates this very distinct idea of who is acceptable and who is not who is specifically an outsider who can't be in the pride lands with the end game being abolish the lion monarchy, that's your that's your aim. That's kind of
1: what I'm saying, yeah. And you know, in real life, in the society that we live in, I don't. I think it's fair to have issues with the monarchy,
2: <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> and our royal family aren't even trying to eat us that we know of. It's <laughs> Disney, man. It's always gonna be conservative. It's always gonna be political, no matter how good and cool the movie is. All of this might be true, this might be how it works with real animals, but these are not real animals we're dealing with here. They're humanised and politicised in so many different ways, so it's important, or at least interesting, to think about what that might actually mean when we divorce it from the animal world and apply it to the human world. Rant over for now.
0: (laughs) So I think my counterpoint to this is an interesting thing to discuss. really is. Is The fact that Mufasa is an absolute dude, and he is voiced by James Earl Jones in incredible fashion, and it's going to be very hard. Because James Earl Jones has never voiced a dictator before. (laughs) (laughs) That voice performance and the characterization, this is really the point in the story that's Mufasa-centric, because obviously when he dies... Spoiler alert, he comes back in the sky for a little bit of wisdom later on in the film, but this is really the, the point of the story where we get to know Mufasa, and we, like Simba, are soaking in Mufasa's kingliness, his command of the kingdom, and I really relished getting to spend time with this performance. There's such a regality and a stoicness to the vocal performance of James Earl Jones.
2: Yeah, what a voice. What a voice! Like, this is why, it's partly why I say he's on my voice acting Mark Rushmore along with Kevin Conroy and Peter Cullen because of this role and because of Darth Vader. I mean, wow. But the gravitas which he brings to Mufasa in so many ways is just always, always felt. But again, even in the darker moments at points, the, the warmth that he still manages to bring to the vocal performance is always felt. And then, in addition to that, there's like some really punch the air, cool stuff, like when Simba is cornered by the hyenas, he tries to do his war, and they're making fun of his war. They like do it again, and then Mufasa wars when uh, it's just like, <laughs> and then it's like, if you ever harm my son again, like I mean, I would be scared <laughs> if James Earl Jones talked to me like that too. I would get it, but yeah, fantastic performance, as you say, very regal, but the gravitas is felt. And the warmth is felt like one of my favourite moments in the entire film is when he's disciplining uh, his son. Well, or you, you think he's going to discipline him to a point after he rescues Simba. And his dad voice is like, Simba, get over here. That was sort of- Simba, is great.
0: I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> oh, the pain you hear from you feeling that in saying. James Earl Jones's voice. Oof.
2: Yeah, but then... It's a beautiful thing because that moment is deeply felt and the lesson which he's trying to impart feels like it's sunk in but 10 seconds later he's playing around with his son's like nobody messes you with your dad and we feel the warmth and the father-son connection between them and the music rises to accentuate that as well it's beautiful story time.
1: he's such a good dad man like if you think about disney dads they're either buffoonish like maurice in beauty and the beast or the sultan in Aladdin or they are really overbearing and controlling, like Triton or they are Bambi's dad, the prince of the forest, who is just a complete absentee, has nothing to do with him and even though Mufasa plays a similar role, you do get that warmth like, one of my favourite shots that I just noticed this time round, or like I just really internalised this time round is when they are just playing with each other it's like around the t- I can't remember if it's just before or just after the the Great Kings of the Past speech, but they are just there's just a little frolic, just like Simba and Mufasa jumping around in slow motion in that beautiful like nighttime savannah, and it's just oh man, this guy is just a good dad. I think a lot of the guys on your voice acting Mount Rushmore, like Kevin Conroy as Batman and Peter Cullen as Optimus Prime, is like oh, just firm but fair dads. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Among woman's
0: animated dads. <laughs>
2: yep (laughs) 100 percent.
0: i just want to quickly touch on simba and mufasa together we have that moment if we can push to the side the politics of it for one second the everything the light touches is our kingdom that actual shot from an animation perspective stood out to me it felt like a sort of hybrid shot of kind of 2d and 3d it felt like the characters were maybe sort of 2d animation but the landscapes themselves were sort of caps assisted cgi is that what's happening there sam uh, yeah i mean
1: it's all caps assisted at this point uh, obviously the 2d characters are drawn on paper and then colored and composited in caps but yeah a lot of those backgrounds will have elements of 3d to them or like a digital version of the multiplane camera or perhaps the two working in tandem
0: okay so we have to talk about I just can't wait to be king. This is the kind of big musical number that propels the film forward, keeps the energy going. And there is so much going on in this from a visual perspective as well as a storytelling perspective. It's like when this song kicks in, the whole color scheme of the film just changes. Again, as we've been talking about with some of the bangers of the Renaissance era, Sam, some of the big songs. This musical number also seems to take place in this kind of nowhere space, in this musical reality, where they're kind of out of their environment. But it changes the colour scheme of the film, and it uses all of the animals in this kingdom as backing dancers, and assistance to this musical number in a way that I thought was really beautiful and it struck me that a lot of the kind of watercolor stylings maybe some of the environments used in this sequence felt kind of Mary Blairish there's a name we haven't encountered in a while the legendary mm. Mary Blair whose illustrations and concept art were so pivotal in a lot of the Banger's era movies and some of the package features as well i kind of felt her influence here was that purposeful do you think uh, yeah that's an interesting point the sequences a lot of the sequences in three caballeros
1: in particular like the train sequence in three caballeros with those really brightly colored trees there's a lot of that coming through here i would say it seems to be nodding to various east african aesthetic traditions and movements as well like tinga tinga art. like you might not know the name but you'll know the art style like very brightly colored for naive animal drones, so there's there's a lot of that going on there as well. I think that it's, it's another conversation actually, but the art influences here, and then obviously Swahili Chantan on the soundtrack are two of the only imprints of like African people and African culture that we we'll find in this movie that's set in Africa, but conspicuously doesn't feature any people. So you know, in, in a way, we can talk about how that might be said to be a a reason the cultures of this continent but also it's cool to see their culture and art homaged in a sequence like this because it is up there with circle of life is one of the most visually striking sequences in the film like it's spectacular it's 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 beautiful in its own way and it looks so different so you are like paying attention and it looks how you're supposed to feel vibrant and excited and, and childlike as well
2: i'm glad you qualified it with the visual spectrum of things. Cause I thought you could say it's up there with the circle of life as a song. And like, hold on, <laughs> hold on.
1: No, not quite.
2: <laughs> I like, I just can't wait to be king. You know, as uh, a different podcast, we, we did like a, a ranking of all the Oscar winning songs. And the fact that Can You Feel The Love Tonight won the best song Oscar instead of circle of life blows my mind <laughs> and makes me kind of upset uh, <laughs> but yeah i really do enjoy i can't, i just can't wait to became because of the visuals because of what it's doing for the story in that moment as well and because of the alternate reality that you mentioned ben that this track does and they do that at multiple points in the film because be prepared is also like an alternate reality fantasy thing but for scar and i'm sure we're going to get into that uh, Some really smart storytelling in
1: that regard as well. And something that only animation and only expressive animation like this can do. We will talk to some degree, about the John Favreau photorealistic film <laughs> in Last and Legacy. If anyone needed an argument as to which is the better film, it's sequences like this and like Be Prepared, which deliberately, consciously deviate from realism to give us something a lot more expressive, a lot more attractive, and a lot more artistically accomplished than what we get in that photorealistic film, which is just a couple of lions running about. Uh, <laughs> it looks cool and it looks real, but it doesn't look like this, it doesn't look like anything in particular.
0: In terms of some of the outlandish stuff happening in this sequence, I love the big crazy tower of animals, kind of anteaters and elephants and ostriches all kind of on top of each other. There's a beautiful shot as well where it's all of these kind of zigzagging giraffe necks, but the patterns on the giraffes are also in these kind of geometric patterns. It just looks incredible. I love this sequence. I'm going to come back to this sequence in a different context when we get to Lasting Legacy. But I think we need to pay some respect to Scar and the characterization of Scar. Let's get back to Scar, who, as we said, opens this movie after the title sequence. We don't zone in on young Simba. We don't zone in immediately on Mufasa. We zone in on Scar, feeling his dissatisfaction with his place in the pack, being overshadowed in many senses by Mufasa, about to have the rug pulled under him in the sense that Simba's birth means that scar has once again been pushed down the line of ascension and he is not very happy about that <laughs> but he is uh, another interesting big disney villain of this era who sam what does scar represent here i mean yeah they don't
1: really miss with their villains in this <laughs> era at all do they but scar is another one where you know like ursula to an extent like jafar where the pleasures of watching him derive from the same things that make him other within the context of the movie, but also within a broader social context. So, like, Scar is... A queer character right scar is camp scar is a fet scar is an outsider in so many ways of course he looks different he's colored different from the other lions as well but it is his campness it is his queerness that makes him so pleasurable to watch and yeah i mean it's it, it, he's just so cool and suave and sophisticated but also there's an element of that Professor Ratigan-like posturing, like he's attempting to come across as sophisticated because he needs to differentiate himself from the rest of Lion Society. Like he says, Mufasa might be stronger, but when it comes to brains, I've got the lion's share. Like he's leaning into these things that he thinks distinguish him, but then also he makes some quite crucial mistakes over the course of the film. And there's a, a pathos to that as well, to the fact that he's he is obviously posturing and he will never be the king that Mufasa is on any level. And he's very Shakespearean, right? And he is Claudius from Hamlet, he is Richard the Third. he is Iago from Othello, he's kind of a blend of these different Shakespearean villain influences, and of course when you do that you get a complex character.
0: When you're talking about the elements of queer coding to this character as well, he seems to own his otherness, he revels in it, there's that moment where he has a scene with Simba young Simba early on and Simba in his naivety just goes you're so weird and Scar's response to that is you have no idea like, he revels in his difference in a way that is kind of admirable. As much as he does some extremely heinous stuff through the course of this film, we can't really be on Scar's side. We can agree with certain elements of Scar's viewpoint. We can't agree with the way that he goes about things. But I think there are elements Mm-mm. to that character. The way that he owns himself in those situations, I think, is pretty admirable. He enjoys the fact that he's a son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> And I think Jeremy Irons is
2: fantastic in the role. The bitterness with which he delivers some of Scar's dialogue is very much felt. And I love the characterization. It's it's interesting, I've read some articles in preparation for this, and people were saying that Scar is a really good villain in one sense, but also not so good in others in terms of after his big plan to take out Mufasa is done. He hasn't really thought about what's next. But that is what makes him sort of an interesting villain to me, in a sense, because especially when you compare him to Mufasa, because Mufasa is all about the big picture, the circle of life, trying to make sure everyone's taken care of. I know that Sami has issues with that, and we'll get to, <laughs> but that is part of what makes Mufasa the king and the duty is. Whereas Scar and his short sightedness has not thought about the long term game. He also. You're talking about making big mistakes, and it's sort of set up in like the opening scenes almost, when Zazu says he shouldn't play with your food. If Scar didn't play with his food, he'd probably be okay. But in many respects, that's what he chooses to do, and it comes back to bite him in the ass. But I love Scar in this, and as I say, Jeremy Irons, the, the venom with which he spews some of his lines, like when he takes out Mufasa, that long-lived the king. And then sort of get that shot where everything around me passes dark apart from his eyes, which which, which just makes it even more just like, damn. Um, (laughs) You can tell that he has thought about this moment and exactly what he's going to say at this moment so many times as he delivers that line. Because he's so ruthless and cunning and just makes everything that much more chilling
1: he's ruthless and cunning but he is also camp and playful and it's a performance so like he will say long live the king he will wait till he thinks he's about to kill simba and say like by the way, I killed your father. And it's like, okay, a lot of villains, like that's a cliche of the villain taking time to reveal that it was them who did what they did. But this feels like a little bit more than that. It's just the, the, the joy that he takes in like, it was me. Even though he probably knows on some level that's the worst thing he could have said in that
0: situation. For me, the one that stood out is when he's basically gloating to young Simba that he's about to kill Mufasa. And it's kind of going over Simba's head because he's just a little kid. He doesn't really understand any of the context. And yes, Scar gloating about the impending murder of Simba's dad to young Simba. that is very, very high up the villainous stuff list. (laughs) If we're drawing up a list of all the villainous actions of every Disney (laughs) villain so far, that's up there. (laughs) Is this the...
2: Simba, it's to die for. It's to die for.
1: Nobody says that. That is, if anyone ever said anything was to die for to me, I would immediately be suspicious. That's not a normal thing that we say. You only ever hear that when someone hinting that they're going to kill somebody.
0: As we pointed out, he doesn't really have much of a plan beyond kill Mufasa ascend to the throne which is ironic because his big song is called be prepared (laughs) yeah (laughs) and this is another great villain song it has in true disney villain style lashings of green lighting green smoke green spewing geezers i also like the touch that we get a bit of green in scar's eyes as well that has to feature in in the majority of these Disney villains. It's a great song for me, a great sequence, but I will warn you all, not a good karaoke number. You think it's going to be a good karaoke number, but there's so much spoken stuff in it that if you're, again, ironically, not prepared for the spoken word bits, you're going to hit some roadblocks along the way there. I take that as a challenge, <laughs> Ben.
1: Uh,
2: ben... You were there when I did this for karaoke <laughs> last year, <laughs> so I don't understand. Come on, then! It. Like I killed this karaoke, <laughs> number. I smashed it. I don't know what you're talking about right now. <laughs> this is a great karaoke. I feel song. like I've
0: heard other people not attack it with such vigor as you were able to. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The spoken word bits—that's <laughs> part of the performance, man. No, you fool! I will be king. That's part of the game.
2: Decades of denial it's are simply, simply why right I'll, I'll be king, undisputed, undisputed, respected, saluted, saluted and seen for the wonder I am. I am. Yes, my teeth and ambitions <laughs> are bad. Be, be prepared. prepared. I mean, come that on. Anger! I will <laughs> okay. I,
0: I retract it all. Us three are going to go and do karaoke, just us, and I am going to just sit and bask as you guys do in perfectly in sync every single spoken word bit of be prepared. I'm excited for that now. Bring it on.
1: You can do just can't wait to be king. You can be David <laughs> Fine. Yeah, I'll do the
0: basic but really fun one. Yeah, I, I'm happy with that. That works for me. No, I
2: love this song. It's second to Circle of Life. Obviously, it's a banger. I love the lyrics. I love how funny it is, even though it's really, really dark. Uh, uh, When you pair the lyrics with some of the visuals in this song, it's really, really fun. Like, you won't get a sniff without me, as the canvas zooms in on him is really, really great. And also, this song, we see it at multiple points, but this is another track that does it in terms of how Scar views the hyenas, which is that he thinks they're idiots. He doesn't have a lot of love for them at all. He's only using them to aid him in his lust for power, but it's like, the lights are not all on upstairs. Like (laughs) he sees these guys are just dumb fools, which makes his ultimate comeuppance that much more sweeter because it's hyenas who do him in at the end. So yeah, again, really great smart storytelling in that regard
0: too. (laughs) Sam, in terms of your beef with not allowing the hyenas in the kingdom. I think the way that falls down for me is that these hyenas are absolute freaks and uh, I do not like them. As we are not supposed (laughs) to like them, you know. Uh, Also, I feel like this sits in a very specific 90s trend of scary hyenas, which feature in The Lion King and also that one episode of Buffy Season 1 where the bullies in the school become possessed by hyenas and start literally eating people scary hyenas totally a 90s thing
1: okay interesting but he so what we're saying is we shouldn't necessarily take scar at his word that he's mainly just interested in parity between hyenas and lions because that's what he says when he brings all the hyenas out It's like this is going to be a golden age of hyena lion collaboration and maybe maybe he's not quite being honest there great sequence maleficent green everywhere I really like when the hyenas are puppeteering some, like, dead bison skeletons or whatever. That shadow puppetry going on the walls. Feels like it's come straight out of Night on Bald Mountain from Fantasia. Also, lots of... I don't want to get political again. Lots of visual nods to Triumph of the Will, right? Like, these hyenas are goose-stepping. There's shots of... Scar standing above them and observing his troops in, that are very similar to shots of Adolf Hitler in a, the propaganda film Triumph of the Will if we are to take Scar's economic model as a villainous caricature of socialism then this is perhaps equating socialism with national socialism in a way like he is Adolf Hitler in this sequence regardless of what he says his intentions are this is like the evil that lurks beneath and you know the hyenas are... Okay, like, Ed is a truly disgusting little freak. <laughs> we don't need to talk about Ed. Ed is is wrong. He is wrong from top to bottom. But then we've got, like, Whoopi Goldberg as Shenzi, Cheech Marin as Banzai, speaking in, like, kind of... Pants.
2: All in the pants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Some great dialogue, but speaking in African-American dialect and, like, Latino-Hispanic dialect, respectively... Uh, So there's an equation being drawn here between certain kinds of people and the the people who are the outcasts in this kingdom, I would suggest.
0: So that leads us into talking about the sequence that we need to talk about, that we're all just going to need a little bit of emotional fortitude to discuss (laughs) as Scar's plan comes to fruition, just as a brief oasis before we have to talk about the death of Mufasa and the incredible Stampede moment. Sam, I'm going to put forward a Disney-versity legend right now. Whoa, okay. So we are struggling, (laughs) as we said, for Disney-versity legends in this renaissance era because all of the characters are a big deal. Everybody knows all of these characters, those little hidden gems, you struggle to come across them, so we have to go really niche, and my niche for this one is... The chameleon walking along the rock that Simba chases away. He's unbothered. He's chilled. He's just doing his cool little chameleon walk, just strolling around in this canyon. I'm a big fan of chameleons anyway. I think it's really cool that they just have these weird little mitt hands. uh, that kind of just sucker onto things. They can change colours. Amazing. Absolute forces of nature. This chameleon, I was like transfixed by him for the, what, 15, 20 seconds he's on screen. And he really pulls you into a false sense of security because you're so excited looking at this cool chameleon that you're not prepared for what's coming next. I love that guy. But I could see the excitement in your face that you were also a fan of this chameleon, right?
1: I love the chameleon. I was thinking, like, is this guy enough to be a Disney Disneyversity legend? I'll see what Ben says. And then when you <laughs> came out, it was like, okay, vindicated, all right. Yeah, we're on the same page.
0: Okay, so we'll make it official... The chameleon on the rock is a Disney-versity legend. Woo! But him leaving the rock is a metaphor, should we say, for leaving things behind, for what was there no longer being there. And that is sadly the case with Mufasa in this sequence. Does that work as a segue? It's staying in anyway. <laughs> this sequence, the stampede, the death of Mufasa, the apex of Scar's plan, is amazing on so many levels. The emotional wound of this moment in all of us 90s and late 80s kids who grew up with this film, the pain of the death of Mufasa lives long in all of us, but re-watching it now as an adult you see how effectively they set up that moment and all these little things they do to make it hit as hard as it does. And There are various little dramatic things, as you said, Amon, that real kiss-off line of long live the king, as Scar kills Mufasa just to really twist the knife, all of these shots cutting back to Simba in absolute peril among this terrifying stampede, that incredible zoom, that really sharp zoom all the way into Simba's face as the horror dawns on him of what is happening, is amazing
1: yeah it's a dolly zoom isn't it it's uh, another example of the way that these computer assisted films are able to imitate live action camera work you get that uh, a few other points there's a couple other dolly zooms in this film and there's also like the conspicuous shifts in focus that we're talking about before with the ants for example and then the wildebeest themselves if we're talking about like the way that computer tech Computer tech, I sound like it. <laughs> I sound like my granddad. The way that computer tech plays into this film. This is the most complex and I think the one that's aged best out of all of the 3D digital sequences we've seen so far. So this is like probably the most moving characters that there's ever been in a single shot in an animated film before. These Wildebeest, that took two and a half years just to do the wildebeest. So, as I alluded to earlier, they were working on the wildebeest basically at any given point during the film's production. So, what they've done is they've created a handful, like four or five distinct wildebeest models in 3D, and then cell shaded them to make them fit with the 2D world, which they do seamlessly. And then they multiply those handful of wildebeests into hundreds and give each of them like a unique randomized path to follow so they've only animated a couple of wildebeest but then they've multiplied them and sent them all out there on their own and it it works so well like compared to the 3d sequences in especially aladdin also beauty and the beast to an extent this looks like it fits <sighs> This sequence
0: um <laughs> are you okay amon i can feel i can feel yeah. the emotional fortitude having <laughs> to, <kick in laughs> to get through this
2: I can only imagine young kids today watching this film for the first time and what their reaction is. Because, you know, you watch the first 20, 30 minutes in this film. And yes, you know, as an adult now, I can see how they're setting it up and the cleverness with, with the taste. But for a young kid, seeing Mufasa, not only are you getting the father son relationship with Simba, which is done articulated very well, but we are also falling in love with Mufasa at that point. And we are like, this guy is the best. He's the bravest, he's the strongest, he's the coolest, he has no way he can die. And like, we didn't sort of speak about it when we were talking about the early sort of Simba section of the film, but there's that amazing symbolic moment. There's a lot of really great symbolism moments all the way through this film, where Simba puts his paw in the paw print that his Mufasa has made. Mufasa is a Titan. There is no way he can die, not like this. And that's dread is heightened at multiple points in the stampede with the dolly zoom shot that you mentioned which is another shot where it feels like everything around simba goes dark and it's just his face illuminating which just again makes it all the more powerful but the music the stampede track by han zimmer is incredible the strings are going crazy the tribal chants again really Heart pounding and accentuating and emphasizing that this is a really dangerous situation that Simba is in. And then, once when, when Father arrives on the scene, like, oh, okay, it's gonna be okay, he's here, he's clearing him out, he's gonna get Simba to safety. And then, when you realize what is about to happen, it's just like it's still very, very emotional for me. And Father Son stuff always gets me when it's done well in films this is one of those which is high on the list because not only did he get the death me Mufasa, which is his own thing, but Simba going to Mufasa and the aftermath of that, it just kills me.
0: Yeah, I think you experience this so much, both as an audience, but also as young Simba. I think it situates you as young Simba in such a clever way. It constantly cuts back to him, his eyes darting back and forth, feeling the kind of panic of him clinging to the branch of the tree. But the thing that hit me most, especially watching it this time, is, as you say, how long they just sit with the death of Mufasa, like the eerie quiet once that sequence is ostensibly over. That single wildebeest galloping through the dust that is still settling on the moment and that Mufasa's body is just there. And Simba nudging him and saying, come on, Dad, get up, Dad. That is heartbreaking. And and not to be all like, hey, there, I wouldn't do that these days, but I don't actually necessarily think in a Disney film today they might sit with that moment for as long and let you kind of wallow in the emotional pain, not just of this character having died, but of this kid realizing that his dad has died and the dawning of that realization it's so bleak and it's so upsetting and it's really really effective that is what hit me most watching it again is just the lingering sense of simba dealing with the fact that he's just witnessed his dad die let alone scar then twisting the knife being like this was your fault which is again so horrible to see him do that to pin the blame on poor little simba
1: Yeah, this movie moves at such a clip as well. Like, that's something I really noticed on this go round is how fast everything is up until that point. Like, scenes that in my head took minutes, took, like, seconds in this movie, like, in the first act. It just goes bang, 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 moving us from one element, from one set piece to another. So you really do feel that slowdown, that oasis of calm, that oasis of quiet and sorrow and grief that follows Mufasa's death. And then as soon as Scar is, like... Run, run away, never return, boom, it's off again. And it just keeps going and going and going for most of the rest of the movie. Like, the movie barely stops. It's so fast, it's so efficient, apart from this moment. And it's really effective.
2: There's no ounce of fat in this movie at all. And we'll talk about it more when we get to Last and Legacy, but the 2019 photorealistic version adds 30 minutes more to the film. But what is it adding, really? (laughs) Whereas this, again, lean, no ounce of fat, no wasted scene, feels like every visual, every bit of dialogue has a purpose, whether it be comedic beat or story beat or character beat that comes into play and they circle back to at multiple points. It's just really smart
0: just as we're at our lowest then the film does what a lot of these disney films do when they get to something really dark they go hey no let's bring in some energy and some fun and some lightness and that comes thank goodness in the form of timon and pumba the absolute boys the dynamite duo (laughs) who come in and take simba under their collective wing they teach him The Ways of the Jungle. This is arguably the moment, Sam, where Simba becomes the king of the jungle, briefly, if they were going to use that title. It's just a wonderful moment to bring some fun and energy back into this thing because the comedic double act that is Timon and Pumbaa is exquisite. Those guys still absolutely crack me up when I watch this film now. They feel like they very much fit in a post- genie post-Robin Williams in a Disney movie vein of, hey, what can we do to make these animated comedy characters really sing, literally, in Hakuna Matata, but also just to make those really work as comedy comedy characters. And it does that, because they are so funny.
1: Yeah, they get a few of those pop culture gags, like uh, they call me Mr. Pig and all of that, (laughs) that you probably wouldn't have done as much before the genie and aladdin and they don't do it anywhere near as much as the genie and aladdin does because that was building off roland williams performance and his magic so it kind of makes a bit more sense they don't want to break the fourth wall too much one thing that they did want to, or that katzenberg wanted to do with these characters that they didn't end up doing in that vein there's the dressing dragon do the hula bit mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a funny <laughs> bit it's not my favorite gag it's a little bit gratuitous in my opinion but katzenberg doesn't know the meaning of the word gratuitous, he wanted to see that scene replaced with them dancing to "Staying Alive like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. And that's just another one of those, like, that is so Katzenberg. Every (laughs) movie, it's like, what stupid pop culture thing did you want to add? (laughs) And he would eventually get his dream of having jungle animals dance to that song in Madagascar.
0: He likes to move it, (laughs) move it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but Timon and Pumbaa, they are good. They are good characters. I don't think that's uh, a controversial thing to say. I might have some controversial things to say about them, but I don't think that's one of them.
0: I like that there's the comedy of their dialogue. You have that kind of interplay. Oh, he looks blue. I'd say brownish gold. But at the same time, they really play, I think, the physical comedy of Timon as the kind of beanpole and Pumbaa as this kind of big dumb lunk. And that kind of interplay, I think, is really fun in the way that they're animated and the way that they move through this world.
2: Yeah, I got a lot of time for Timon and Pumba. they're really, really fun. I think Nathan Lane and Elisabella are fantastic in these roles and just are these characters. You know, I wasn't familiar with their voices before this film, obviously, and even sort of now outside of this film, I wouldn't really recognise them, but they just are these characters to me in a way that's really, really cool. And this is a really cool sequence of the movie in that you need them to be as as they are so that it makes sense that simba wouldn't initially want to return to pride rock because he's cool hanging with his friends in this really cool part of the jungle eating all this cool grub and it absolutely does that because we fall as in love with timon and pumba as simba does
1: Oh yeah, I really want to come back to that idea. But first I want to say I love Nathan Lane. So oh, Intervalor, great. I love Nathan Lane in everything <laughs> he does. And I think Nathan Lane is how I realised what actors were when I was a kid. Because mm. he's got that really distinct voice. So like, I, I saw Lion King and then I saw Mouse Hunt. And I was like, wait a second, that's Timon! <laughs> and then like a year later, it's Stuart Little and he's the cat. And it's like... They're using the same guy. Does anybody know about this? (laughs) someone that told people that this is how movies are made. It's the same guy over and over again. So Nathan Lane, weirdly big, part of my childhood.
0: (laughs) I love that. I think it's interesting as well. We've talked about Scar and the hyenas as these kind of outsider characters, but Timon and Pumbaa are very much that as well. They have their little kind of motto, not just Hakuna Matata, but... When the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world. They just live their own existence out in the fringes of the Pride Lands. They can just claim their own space and uh, are perfectly content with that. I think it's nice to see some characters just like living their own lives, their own happy lives, uh, in their own way, out on the fringes of the world that we've been introduced to in the first part of the film. And they sell that idea, as we say, to Simba through Hakuna Matata, which... Amon might get cross but Circle of Life is majestic Circle of Life is incredible but Hakuna Matata is what? a bop I might be my favourite song in the film what Maybe. is wrong with you? <laughs> no I refute <I'm>
1: <laughs> I think
0: it's my least favourite song in the what? movie it's your least favourite <laughs> okay defend this thank you for taking the heat off me now you explain yourself <laughs>
1: I just think it's the least, yeah. Circle of Life, incredible, majestic, be prepared, one of the best villain songs, perfect karaoke number. Can you feel the love tonight? Okay, so I think, okay, those two are unimpeachable. Can you feel the love tonight? All right, it's a ballad. It's where the kids might nod off, but I think it's really rousing and genuinely moving. I would quibble with its role in the film, which we can talk about later. I think the Elton John performance in the credits is awesome as well. And uh, I just can't wait to be king great sequence and maybe the sequence and the song are getting muddied up in my head but i think that's just a really fun number which perfectly sums up where simba's at at that point in the movie And um, maybe it's just because it's like overplayed but like overplayed oh, i can't turn on the radio without hearing <laughs> hakuna madana um still in the top 10 of the uk airplay charts to this day but i i don't know it's just it's not for me it's,
2: it's... i really like the track let me just say that but like i'd like them circle of
1: life Obviously,
2: be prepared. Number two, Hakuna Matata. Number three, can you feel the love tonight? Number four, I just can't wait to be king. Number five,
1: I think that's me. But move, move Hakuna
0: Matata to the bottom, and that's my that's my ranking. <laughs> You're both wrong. They're all number one. Uh, Sam, my my riposte to you, Sam, is simply the way Pumba sings crazy. <laughs> he really accentuates the ee. yeah that's good it's good i don't like
1: fart jokes and like this this song you don't realize because it's not like the catchy bit like 50 percent of this song is, is, a, is a one long fart joke maybe that's why i love it there's some exceptional fart jokes out there obviously this is not my favorite and you know okay so we talked about this with regards to under the sea, but I also think so I don't think this makes it a bad song But I think it's interesting to think about these songs in these movies where they are Supposedly the most fun song like the comedy song the light-hearted song the one that all the kids are gonna love in the movie But it contradicts what the audience should ostensibly want for the character And that's why I want to settle back to what Amon was saying Which is like perfectly true that the purpose of these characters is to make it look appealing for Simba to shirk his responsibilities and just hang around in the jungle for a couple of years without coming for scar and i think this song does a good job of that but yeah it's just that's like hakuna matata that's most people's takeaway from this movie right hakuna matata wonderful phrase one second of all means no worries for the rest of my days perfect but that's like the opposite of the moral of the movie i don't think that makes it a bad song it's just uh It's interesting that it's what grips us.
0: But I think it's exactly what Simba needs at this moment, because he has so many worries. So I like that it gives you basically just a safe space for Simba to be, to grow up in. And you, as the audience, feel the relief that he has some characters looking out for him to give him that space until he's old enough to go and do what needs to be done. I think compared to other Disney films, when the characters are already... I mean, they're basically all teenagers. Look at The Little Mermaid, she's like 16 or whatever. But they are ostensibly kind of grown-up characters, whereas Simba is fully a kid. And I like that this gives him a space to kind of mature to the point that he can go and do what needs to be done. And that, of course, is the other thing this song does in a very, very elegant, beautiful shot, a transition shot, that we go from baby Simba or kid Simba to teenage Simba to kind of oldish teenage, kind of grown-up Simba in that shot of them all walking along the log. That is so elegant. Five thumbs up, ten thumbs up to all the animators there.
2: Can I just say, though, that's a really, really, really long time to be singing the same song over and over again. My God. When the
0: song is this good, when it's the best song in the film, guys, then it deserves to be sung for years and years and years and years.
1: I'm all about that log shot. That sounds like an innuendo, but I don't think it is. I'm all about that log shot. That is the best. That's maybe my favorite shot of the movie, so maybe I have to give it to this song a little bit. But, yeah, to more than point, I think it's interesting to think about those characters i totally agree with what you're saying ben it's just it's interesting to think about those characters in terms of like their shakespearean counterparts as well because if this is hamlet they are rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are like sort of baddies they're actively working for claudius he sends them to basically distract hamlet from you know try and enable his procrastination which is his fatal flaw to a lesser extent falstaff and henry the fourth who's the young prince hal's sidekick who's trying to not necessarily trying to but is distracting him from his duties as well by being just a big fun drunk and those characters in shakespeare are explicitly presented as negative influences in a way that timon and pumba obviously aren't but timon and pumba don't have much of an arc like they come through for simba in the end but they don't accept their responsibilities and good for them they don't change their ways good for them exactly the movie has its cake and eats it simba grows up but timon and pumba are still timon and pumba we get a whole cartoon series that we'll talk about That's just them being dumbasses (laughs) (laughs) over and over and over again learning nothing yeah these characters who are also like breaking the fourth wall and making pop culture gags a little bit like the genie they represent this like anarchic rebellion against the typical conservative domesticating disney narrative almost and I like you pointed out ben they are outcasts as well they are good outcasts if scar is a queer character i think timon and pumba are to an extent as well you know they are life partners nathan lane was like a fairly prominent gay rights and aids activist like he was well known as a gay actor so there's a positive element to the way that they are depicted as outcasts which you can contrast with scar and the hyenas um yeah and like like genie he gets his freedom at the end aladdin is domesticated simba is domesticated they are incorporated into the power structures of these worlds but genie and timon and pumba are allowed to continue to be outsiders and they have like more cartoony designs they operate on more cartoon logic which affords them a narrative freedom unavailable to the lead characters who have to settle down. So that's why I like Timon and (laughs) Pumbaa.
0: I like him as well because while we're mostly referring back to Bambi when we compare this to previous Disney movies, having these characters who just like to kind of wiggle their butts and vibe around in the jungle, that's a huge Jungle Book vibe, and I'm all about that. What's better than this, Sam? Guys being dudes. But the thing that comes to break Simba out of this cycle that he's in with Timon and Pumbaa, to give him... A kick up the bum to come back to the Pride Lands to take on Scar, to reclaim the Pride Lands once and for all, is the return of Nala, and she tumbles onto the scene, into the arms of Simba, they have a little bit of a scrap, I love the way that it reprises the dynamic that they had as kids, kind of playing around and play fighting with each other. And that kicks off the romance plot really here. It's weird. We haven't set this up from the beginning, but it is weird that they are basically promised to one another as kids. Very strange. We'll gloss over that. But I like that when they come back together, there is some crazy chemistry here, especially obviously with this being a musical. It uses this musical number, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, to really expediate the romance between them but it works because the chemistry between these guys is off the charts in this movie. Yeah, I think they have chemistry when they're kids. I think that moment of when they're wrestling and it's
1: Pinger, Pinger again, that's chemistry. (laughs) But um, yeah, as the adults, you're getting something from them. And a lot of it is the work of the song. I mean, the animation's great. The voice acting's great. A lot of it's the work of the song. The directors and Katzenberg both agreed that Can You Feel The Love Tonight felt unearned. I think that's why it's sung predominantly non-diegetically it's not these characters singing this love song to each other for the most part because they shouldn't be quite there in their relationship yet realistically what we get is just the voice of love the voice of the jungle the voice of this the disembodied voice of this burgeoning romance so elton john objected to it being cut he thought it was the best song and then they tried to Basically, get one over on him by having Timon and Pumba sing the entire thing, and they screened for Elton John a version where Timon and Pumba sing the whole song <laughs> and obviously just butcher it, and Elton John was appalled. <laughs> but their bits are good, their bits are fun.
2: I was gonna say I really enjoyed the way they tied <laughs> up and ended. Our trio down to two, the sweet caress <laughs> of twilight.
0: It's oh, all it's, it's
2: really great. But yeah, I do. It's not explicit, but I like the message that I love which is shared, is more organic and more earned and more right than a love that is betrothed or affianced, which is a word that this film taught me, by the way. <laughs> I, did, I did not know affianced until Zazu, so thank you for that concern. It's, it's not explicit, but I, I like that the film has that message to a degree as well.
1: Yeah, because we do get so many of these, mainly the older ones, because Aladdin's already played with debunking this. But these older movies where, like Sleeping Beauty, perfect example, where these characters are promised to each other from childhood. Actually, in that movie and in this movie, we're to see them meet each other as adults and fall for each other more organically. Um, but even more organically in this movie. Although, actually, now that I say it out loud, is this sequence better than Once Upon a Dream and The Dance in sleep and beauty i think the sleep and beauty sequence is better but this one feels more believable there's a couple falling for
0: each other also like the cinderella date this is a date where they kind of stroll around some water for a bit and then they're in love that again is a recurring disney trope robin hood do that as they well do.
1: with with robin and Mid Marion, yeah they get that that love song sequence where they're just like staring at a, a waterfall in a pond for a bit look what's more romantic
0: than that What's more romantic than that is when she literally licks his face. Oh, my God. And so Nala implores Simba to come back to the Pride Land. She lays a real smackdown on him. Uh, He is just going around basically just saying Hakuna Matata to everything, which is what he's learned (laughs) from his time with Timon and Pumbaa. But that line where he says, you sound like my father. And she says, at least one of us does Oof, I was winded. Burn! Yeah. So that propels Simba back to the Pride Lands. We have that moment where Rafiki, who is purely on his, like, Yoda game with this (laughs) thing, he's just, like, feeling it in the Force. 100%. He's this wise old weirdo living out on his own. He basically is getting Simba to kind of look at his own reflection, like some kind of Jedi lesson. It leads up to this moment where Simba returns to the Pride Lands we have the moment where Mufasa appears in the sky. Remember who you are. <laughs> music kicks in. That moment where Simba's like, I'm going back. And the triumphant music kicks in. And he's galloping across the plains. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. good. Amazing, right? Absolutely incredible.
2: Yep. I love it. Rafiki is one of my star favorites in this film. He's always so much fun whenever he shows up. Some of the dialogue, which he's saying, he's imparting wisdom, but in a very fun, entertaining way. Like, it turns of you can learn from the past that you can learn from it. And then he sort of tries to swing his stick at Simba and Simba dodges and he's learning. But yeah, all of that is really, really great. And again, a nice bit of visual storytelling when he's on his way to the Miracle Pond to see his father. He's running from right to left when he's escaping to timon and pumba through the field of thorns he's going from left to right so to go back to the pride land he has to sort of go back to his trauma and untangle all this thorns that
1: he's established when he ran away yeah. another really great bit of visual storytelling in that moment the hakuna Matata log walkers left to right as well so that that mm. whole it's all like a progression from left to right to the jungle to this moment where he meets Mufasa, and then it's all right to left from then on, baby.
0: That shot of him running across the desert as well is absolutely incredible. I love the way it overlays that kind of super wide shot of tiny Simba running across the plains, but then you have that overlaid with the close up of his feet as he's running. Mm. Amazing stuff, and that takes him back to the Pride Lands for this face off with scar oh my god that moment when simba's mum who doesn't she does have a name but she's not named that much in this film. when she sees him and she thinks it's mufasa oh my god that really got me as well but it all settles into this kind of big face-off but again if rafiki is playing the yoda role if we're getting star wars parallels here there's some real revenge of the sith lava spewing brawl <laughs> finale stuff going on here as well
1: and there's a bit of a Yoda with a lightsaber in Attack of the Clones moment where he starts hitting hyenas with his stick, which is another. So there's fart jokes, but then there's something that really gets on my nerves. I might have mentioned it before. I can't think where I would have encountered it, but it's a pet peeve of mine. It's a joke that I just do not like is old people doing things that old people shouldn't do. Old people doing skateboarding, old people doing like breakdancing, old people doing kung fu. I'm not here for I don't think it's funny. It's something that animators are obsessed with. Like, oh, you know what kids will find hilarious? Old people doing young people things. I'd never liked it my entire life. Love Rafiki. Wish he didn't do a Bruce Lee impression in this movie. Sam. S- s- stick to the wisdom, in my opinion.
2: <laughs> no, I refute this. I'm sorry, I disagree. <laughs> Every time I watch this with my family... That moment is something which we all mimic and try and get it in time
1: with the figures punching
2: because it's so cool!
1: Okay, you've turned me around on it again with that story. <laughs> I'm picturing that now. This is great!
0: In the fight between Simba and Scar, we have these shots where there's loads of epic slow-mo going on and they're kind of clawing at each mm. other's faces. What do they do there, Sam? Are they slowing the frame rate? Because it still feels really fluid, but those shots are really impressive.
1: That's a really good question. Are they? <laughs> it, it almost doesn't make that much of a difference. But are they animating it at full speed and then slowing it down, or are they animating a smaller number of frames? It, I mean, it looks like there's frames missing mm. in a similar way to they're doing like the action sequences in Spider Verse or in there. Uh, Puss in Boots The Last Wish, which might be out by the time this podcast comes out and it rules.
0: (laughs) If you're listening to this in a world where Puss in Boots The Last Wish is in cinemas right now, oh my god, seriously, drop everything and go and see Puss in Boots The Last Wish. That is incredible (laughs) cinema.
2: I do love as we see Simba sort of reintroduced to Pride Rock and Scar thinks it's Mufasa initially. And the fear is this. (laughs) And then when it's like, oh, it's Simba. (laughs) He just relaxes and this boy is like a whole new tomba. I I did enjoy that little moment.
0: And with that face-off between Scar and Simba, it takes us back to a similar Disney moral that we've had in the past where Simba gets Scar right on the edge Scar is pleading for his life, and I am loving seeing that because seeing Mufasa plead for his life in that stampede sequence is one of the most heartbreaking bits for me. So seeing Scar have to beg for his life, he's like, Yeah, you beg, Scar, you beg, horrible Scar. And Simba obviously does the right thing and says, Well, you gotta get out of here, but you should you can live. And that's the moment where Scar then throws up the embers into Simba's face to kick the fight off again. And that is essentially Scar's Undoing that he could have walked away at that point, and we also had that with Gaston in Beauty and the Beast, where he had a chance that he could have gone and lived, but he just had to take one last shot at our hero, which ultimately ends with him dying. Goodbye, Scar, good riddance, off you go. It's interesting that that keeps coming back in these movies.
1: Yeah, we don't want Simba to be a murderer, our hero can't be a murderer. Uh, respect for Prince Eric, who just straight up stabs Ursula through the heart with a board. That's what we <laughs> want to see from our heroes. A bit of moxie, yeah? None of this mercy stuff.
0: That brings us back to the beginning. In true Bambi style, in true Circle of Life style, balance has been restored in a way that I also think is a bit ghibli-ish. Uh, this is maybe an early example of a Disney film taking on those ideas of restoring balance rather than necessarily just good overcoming evil but we are back in the pride lands now as run by simba and nala we find out they've got a little baby cub it's a return of the circle of life all the animals are flocking in to pay tribute and ah oh, this moment right where simba is ascending pride rock the redemptive rain is lashing down the sky is clearing we hear mufasa's voice This rebirth, with the Hans Zimmer music just going at absolute full pelt. I had a lump in my throat watching this. This film really, like, got me in an emotional place. Obviously, it takes you back to your childhood for for me, and I'm sure for you guys too. But just the film itself doing its thing, I had a lump in my throat at several points here. Seeing all the colour returning to Pride Rock, all the other animals gathering, Rafiki presenting Simba and Nala's cub... Oh god, 10 out of 10 Yes, you've nailed the <laughs> ending It's incredible I was a, I was a mess
2: It's really, really special I have been lucky enough to see Hans Zimmer live A couple of times uh, One of those times with A friend of mine, Jack And when he played King of Pride Rock <laughs> We both looked at each other At exactly the right time When the Rafiki says, it is time And said it to each other <laughs> The music went to another level. I will never not get chills watching that sequence. It is really special. It is really powerful. Again, the conclusion of Simba's arc, the accepting of responsibility of his role, his coming into his own as king. It's so powerful and beautiful. And the music, the track is called King of Pride Rock. I said the Lion King score... Hans Zimmer is top five scores. King of Pride Rock is in my top five Hans Zimmer tracks of all time. It is phenomenal. The emotional power that he rings from that track in that moment. And that's the beautiful thing about film scores. And the reason why I try not to listen to film scores before I watch what they're in is because of how the music is tied into specific moments. And when I listen to King of Pride Rock, my mind is playing out the scene. As it's going on and i scene, a track like that where the music is so indelible you can't help but tie it to the scene in which it plays it's it's a really special piece of work
1: I was wondering what you guys think of the fact that Scar causes climate change in the movie <laughs> it's pathetic fallacy it's like reflecting the like emotions of, of, of what the characters are experiencing but like real physical Damage seems to have been done to this landscape by hyenas eating a bit more or whatever. Like, what's the connection? And then it all just goes away. It's interesting because in a movie like Bambi, we'll get similar, we'll get like the, the, the forest is like destroyed. But that's by the hand of man right like Bambi is a movie with people in it so it's able to make a point about the relationship between people and the natural world but this movie has no people in it so David Whitney is an academic who wrote about this in his book the idea of nature in Disney animation and he said that it links climate change to apathy and immorality by linking it with what scar has done but it doesn't suggest a causal relationship it's just interesting to think about this is a movie about the natural world which does depend picked climate change, but it's not really a movie about climate change or about what humans have done to the natural world. So it's like, is there a moral to be taken from it, environmentally speaking, other than this is a beautiful utopia untouched by man. This is how much fun animals can have and how beautiful things can be in a world without people in it. But it doesn't go further than that.
0: As ever, I have a stupid response to your very thoughtful point, which is that (laughs) Mufasa is in the clouds. Mufasa now controls the rain. (laughs) Scar (laughs) has made an enemy of the clouds this day Ever since Mufasa was killed There has been no rain In Pride Rock, everything has dried up Mufasa's been holding all the rain in As soon as Scar's dead He's like, release the rain, that's the power Of Mufasa, he bestows The rain again As Toto once predicted He blesses the rains down in Africa
1: Yeah, well done, okay Case closed (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right then that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark weird stuff that didn't make it into the movie. Now Sam, as we've been talking about this is obviously a kind of take on Shakespeare almost accidentally and it's not meant to be totally faithful, but was there other stuff from the Shakespearean canon or other plot lines that were mooted for this that got jettisoned along the way?
1: Yes, the Hamlet-esque plot developed over time. It didn't really crystallise until quite late in the development of the film. There was a few early drafts which were quite different. One involved a war between lions and baboons, in which Scar was a baboon and Rafiki was a cheetah, because he can't be a baboon. Even though he's not actually a baboon, he's a mandrill. But he describes himself as a baboon, so I can't argue. (laughs) Another mooted plot had Simba get separated from his pride and adopted by a baboon and a mongoose. What? Maybe a Timon and Pumbaa thing there. So he's raised in a community of baboons, and he battles an evil jackal named Ndogo before reuniting with his pride.
0: Oh, I kind of want the mongoose cut. I like the idea of a mongoose being in here.
1: Yeah, okay. The original director for this film, I didn't mention this up top before, Alizar Menkoff came in, was George Scribner. Uh, the director of Oliver and Company. And he left after the decision to make it a musical because he had envisioned it as effectively an animated nature documentary with basically like no dialogue, just lions being lions.
0: What's better than this? Lions being (laughs) dudes.
1: Yeah. Okay, we got that. (laughs) Sorry,
0: that is just one of the best vines of all time and I will quote it. That's the circle of vine right there. I'm going to quote it. Appropriate.
1: In a movie about a jungle where there are vines, right, on occasion. Right, I'm moving on. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so if usually in Last and Legacy, we talk about the movie as an adaptation, right? And this was kind of advertised as the first Disney movie. It was promoted by saying it was the first Disney movie that isn't an adaptation, which isn't even really true because Lady and the Tramp and the Aristocats were both basically developed as original scripts. Like, they were ideas that were gonna be something else and then they were the movie first they weren't really adaptations in the traditional sense so that's a lie but other people have claimed that it's a lie for a different reason so there was a reasonably successful aired in the US anime show called Kimber the White Lion from the 1960s created by Osamu Tezuka creator of astro boy who is probably the single most iconic and significant artist in the history of anime and manga like he is the guy if anyone is the walt disney of anime it's a sabotezuka and he made this manga in the 50s which became a show in the 60s which was dubbed and aired in america called kimba the white lion which shares a lot of similarities with the lion king partly the main character's name is Kimba, which is similar to <laughs> Simba. Wow. But Simba is just so I'm kinda of debunked some of these as we go maybe. Simba is just the Swahili word for lion. That's where that name comes from. And Simba was originally going to be the name of Kimba in the English dub of Kimba. So The Kimba thing, it's all just based on the fact that it's the Swahili word for lion, and that's like the most obvious apparent similarity. But his father dies and his mother dies in Kimba. He has visions of his parents in the sky. There's a villain named Claw, who is a darker coloured one-eyed lion, who does have hyena henchmen. And there are numerous shots of the environment, like the animals, the mountains, the sunrises, that are extremely similar. And these similarities cause protest in Japan, where Tezuka is a legend, especially among the animation community. But the Lion King directors swear they've never heard of the show. Even though some of them probably should have, because it was aired in america some of the directors and writers and animators have claimed that no one at disney had ever heard of asamu tezuka which is not possible if you are an animator who studied animation it just got like none i tell you now none of my students leave university without knowing who asamu tezuka is <laughs> just in case they
0: accidentally create i don't know astro <laughs> Kid? Space boy. boy yeah
1: tezuka's production company and his family agree that this is most likely a coincidence even though I'm not entirely sure how likely that is. So they never attempted to sue or pursue action, and apparently suing people for copyright infringement isn't anywhere near as common in Japanese culture either. So we can't get into it much further than this. This could be its own podcast, I would call it Little White Lions, that would be a great name <laughs> for a podcast about the Kimber the White Lion controversy, but yeah, in terms of what this movie may or may not have been adapted from and what it may have left behind, uh, Kimber the White Lion is is certainly something that needs to be acknowledged.
0: Yeah, is there anywhere we can watch that these days? Is it streaming anywhere here?
1: You know what? I don't know. I don't think it'll be streaming anywhere officially. It's pretty easy to find like most anime shows on the internet if you look hard enough, I think there's like long chunks of this on YouTube and there's lots of video edits on YouTube comparing sequences from this to The Lion King.
0: So that controversy aside then, what did critics have to say when The Lion King was released? Surely, like us, they were bowled over by the majesty of this movie. Is this a big critical hit? Yes. Yes. But. (laughs) There's a but? There's a but. The general vibe...
1: From most of the reviews that I read, was this is very good, but this is a downturn from what Disney have been doing. Really? Like this does not compare favorably to Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and wow. Aladdin. And that's like the consensus. So like Siskel and Ebert, that was their point. Uh, Giant Maslin from the New York Times said similar. There was some more enthusiastic reviews from Entertainment Weekly and Rolling Stone. But yeah, so for example, this from Washington Post as well. So they express that same sentiment, good, but not as good as those previous three films. And also, the songs are innocuous enough, but none of the numbers really stands out. No. And without a memorable musical thing to unify what? the elements, the tale falls into fragments. Multiple reviewers criticised the songs no. as banal or unmemorable. What? what in Christ's name were they talking Sam, about? Sam, I
2: need the names, numbers, and addresses of everyone who said that so I can hunt them down.
0: Let the record show that while you were relaying that information, Amon was basically (laughs) clawing his own face off.
1: So you, on our last episodes on Mother Christmas Carol, because the same thing happened Mm. with regards to the songs and the reviews, (laughs) and then you said, like, you always try not to criticise the songs in a musical too much because history always proves you wrong. It's a
0: trap to say in the review the songs aren't good because you're going to read that review in two weeks and feel like an absolute idiot. I mean, I, I, I... (laughs) No, it doesn't make any
1: sense. Maybe. So if we're comparing it to those three previous films which Joel had the Ashman Mencken soundtracks, I would say that this group of songs is maybe my least favourite of those four movies. Maybe. I do think, because Ashman and Mencken, their big thing was like Broadway, really cohesive really narratively propelled musical scores and i don't know maybe this feels a little bit more like a set of pop songs than it does a set of songs written for a musical but that might just be my brain telling me that because of the elton john thing i think it is my least favorite but it's right. incredible it's still one of the best soundtracks ever written for a film
2: i think be prepared is superb one of the best written songs if you're talking about Hakuna Matata, I Can't Wait to Be King, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? They're all very good. But when you compare it to sort of the other collections of songs in those films you mentioned, maybe I can understand your point. But then there's this little track called Circle of Life. <laughs> I don't think Amon's mentioned it before, but there's this songwriter called Circle of Life. And, uh... Which is like better than 99% of the stuff that Disney has put out in my opinion it's right up there for iconic magic like i think that one is so far and away better than anything else in the lion king that it bolsters the collection
1: Uh, for me anyway it brings up the average it brings up the average yeah didn't win the oscar so it got oscar for best score won and it was nominated for Best Song for Can You Feel The Love Tonight, Hakuna Matata, and Circle of Life. Can You Feel The Love Tonight won. I mean, that's just because it's the Oscar Bates song, right? Because it's the ballad. I don't care. It's madness. It's
2: utter <laughs> madness. <laughs>
0: but the reviews were generally positive. And I think you've already teed up. Financially, this was crazy bonkers huge. Box office was massive for The Lion King.
1: $760 million worldwide Oof. in 1994 compared to Aladdin's $500 million. So that was the wow. previous highest gross animated film, previous highest gross Disney film. This is like 50%. It's done 50% better than Aladdin effectively. It became the second highest grossing film of all time. What? Second to Jurassic Park. Yes. Which had just come out. <laughs> ben loves it. Oh my god. Both.
0: Movies were just peaking. <laughs> yeah.
1: And. It remains the highest gross and hand-drawn movie of all time. It probably always will be. I mean, between inflation and the numbers that some of these anime TV spin-off movies have been doing in the last couple of years, maybe we'll see something pull ahead of it. But I can't imagine this ever not being the highest gross and hand-drawn movie of all time. Highest gross and animated movie in general until Finding Nemo in 2003. So all those early Pixar hits didn't come close. And the current highest gross and animated movie of all time in any medium is the 2019 remake of The Lion King. So, still a huge deal. This thing does numbers, basically.
0: And in terms of numbers, what numbers are we ascribing to it? I think for me, again, this is such an easy, instant five stars. I am slightly wrestling with this because it's so attached to my childhood, but this for me has always been the big one. I think this might be the best movie movie we've watched so far i don't know the best movie movie as opposed to the best goofy movie (laughs) (laughs) which there's only one contender well two extremely goofy movie as well uh this might be the best this might be the best disney movie so far yep okay it's
1: i mean we'll rank these things in, in a couple of months time and we'll see where we'll come out oh that's gonna be a headache. So I already... I'm addicted to Letterboxd, so I've already got rankings of all of these things. If you want to really spoil yourself and see exactly how I would rank these, you can find a lot of the Disney movies in my top 200 animated films on Letterboxd, which is a thing that I have. And I will say that, after watching this most recent run, The Lion King has moved around a bit in that ranking. But I'm not going to say in what direction and what it's been swapping places with. I'll save that for our Renaissance ranking episode. But it's five stars. Oh, it's few. Okay, it's it's I was definitely worried one of the best Disney movies. It's definitely well up there. I'm sure it still will be at the very end of this podcast coming really, really high in our rankings. My misgivings about some of the political messages, which are obviously subtextual, if anything, aside, it's a perfect goddamn film. It's just start to finish, like we're saying, really, really tight. It is funny most of the time uh, and all the songs really are top tier even though our individual rankings may differ mm-hmm. so yeah i can't it doesn't get better than this except maybe it does we'll wait and see
2: sam as long as the lion king is number one on the rankings then you and me were going to be fine we're still going to be friends and it's going to be it's going to be great so yeah
1: <laughs> I, don't look too closely oh boy, oh boy. at my boxed but
2: well, we we had a good run sam so it was all good no <laughs> Uh, yeah, now this is not just my favourite Disney animation so far in terms of 1994, it's my favourite Disney animation so far in terms of 2023. Right. This is iconic, this is a masterpiece, this is an easy five stars. Not just again for the quality of the movie, which is phenomenal, but the the memories that I have that are attached to this are numerous and entertaining in their own right. So yeah, this one's very close to my heart. I cannot wait to share it with my nieces and nephews when they're growing up and with my own kids if and when I have them. It's going to be a big day in the woman household whenever that happens.
0: (laughs) The circle of life continues. (laughs) Indeed. So the circle of pod brings us to the final section of the show, Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character and the lasting legacy of lion king is huge where the hell do we begin i'm going to kick things off by returning to i just can't wait to be king which i said i was going to do and that's because the video game the platform game that was on i think it was on some sega thing i had them all on pc i also had the aladdin one the i just can't wait to be king level. Was hard as nails. You're young Simba, you're trying to jump on the heads of all the giraffes, you're hopping around, monkeys are throwing you around. It was crazy. I spent hours and hours as a kid trying to beat that level, and I I don't know if I ever did it's
1: incredibly difficult it also looks incredibly cool and it's got the music like it's as good as 16-bit video game art gets to be honest like the level with which they're able to approximate what they did in the movie is, is really impressive a couple of other video games while we're on video games timon and pumba's jungle games that's one that i had on the pc which recreates classic arcade games like space invaders and frogger and pinball with timon and pumba chasing after bugs or whatever (laughs) it's it's pretty good adventures in Typing with timon and pumba that's basically (laughs) what it says on the tin the amount of times timon and pumba have been appropriated for educational content is staggering and we'll get to a few more as we go Uh, But I think we'll leave games there for now, but rest assured, there have been many of them. Shall we do movies? Yeah, the movies are the
0: big ones.
1: Okay, right. Lion King 2, Simba's Pride, 1998. Ben, you watched this recently, I think. For
0: the first time, I have actually watched straight-to-DVD sequels, specifically for this podcast. Lion King 2, Simba's Pride, which I had seen as a kid when I was little. My sister got tickets i think for her birthday or something to go and see steps and i was sad because i wasn't invited to go and see steps i was upset that i wasn't part of this but me and my brother stayed at home and we rented lion king to simba's pride and i remember absolutely nothing about it all i remember is that story <laughs> you remember the jealousy in your heart remember- but you don't <laughs> remember the actual movie I remember the important lesson that I had to learn, not from Mufasa, but from my lovely mum and dad. Amon, Lion King 2, where are you at with that?
2: I think I have seen it, but I cannot remember a single thing. The only thing that I remember from that film uh, consistently, because it really it became more than just a song associated with the film, was He Lives In You, uh, yeah. which is a song by Le Bohème, uh which Hans has done a, a couple of times at his uh, live concerts which has always been fun, so I know that track pretty well, but the film, I really need to rewatch it. Did you have a good time on the rewatch, then?
0: Yeah, it's all right, you know. It's mm. noticeably a lower quality in every regard mm-hmm. compared to the first one, which as we were saying is like a five-star masterpiece. You can really feel it in the animation that it's just not on the same level. It's trying to do some similar things. It's still playing with lights in a bit of a more obviously cheap way. Had some good songs in it, though. There's one about falling in love that they make a big deal of. Obviously, in The Lion King, you have Hakuna Matata. In this one, they use the word for love, Upendi, and they have this whole song called In Upendi, which was really catchy. That From hearing it once, that is still in the old brain box somewhere. (laughs) Sam, there was a song you love as well that's like an outcast song, because this is a sequel that's about Nala and Simba's daughter, Kiara, who basically befriends not scar's son in fact they say it's not scar's son but a little boy who's grown up on the fringes of the pride land when scar was outcast so it's like almost romeo and juliet thing of these these cubs from different sides of the tracks who fall in love and all the parents are against it that is the general setup Uh, and there's a song where the boy is sent away he's kind of come back to the pride lands and he's been welcomed in but then he gets sent away for reasons I already can't remember. It's not the most memorable <laughs> plot, but there's a song there, right, Sam, that you like?
1: There's a song. Okay, so, right. Zira, who is a female lion who has some affection for Scar, who knows in what way, who has a son called Kovu, raises that kid to try and trick the kid into killing Simba. Oh, she raises the kid to kill Simba in Revenge for Scar, and she eventually ends up, like, tricking him or manipulating him into setting Simba up as this kid's fallen in love with Kiara and that's why he gets kicked out and there is a song called deception which goes a little something like this deception disgrace evil as plain as the scar on his face i do know this song then the next round goes deception for shame He asked for trouble the moment he came. (laughs) And and that line is delivered by this bass-voiced hippopotamus who is in like literally one shot, but for me he's a (laughs) Disney-versity legend because that guy just lives in my head. He's lived in my head for like 20 years since I saw this movie, or however long it's been. He asked for trouble the moment he came. Fabulous. You're
0: in upendi with that hippo.
1: I mean, you pendy with that hippo. So, Ben said, oh, this movie is quite... It's okay, it's all right, you know, is what he said. But Ben is in the privileged position of this being the first sequel that he's watched for this podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm in the position of having watched every sequel so far for this (laughs) podcast. And let me tell you, this is leagues above. Well, it's Cinderella 3, Twist in Time. We all know that that's great. (laughs) Lion King 2, Simba's Pride is right up there it's the best they've done what's the better sequel
2: the lion king 2 or the tenor jafar because i've got a lot of time for the tenor jafar
1: lion king oh. 2 if you rewatch those my friend lion king 2 is definitely better than return of jafar king of thieves the third land movie that's pretty good okay I lion seen that king one. 2 it feels like it's trying to pitch itself at the same level as the movie it doesn't regard itself as like a triviality and that plays a big part of, the, of it the songs play a big part in it as well, like they are not the best, they're not as good as the originals, but they don't feel tossed off or like chintzy, like the other songs in the other sequels do. Joss Whedon wrote the lyrics for one of the songs, bit of trivia, <laughs> okay, actually double bit of trivia, so the villain's song, My Lullaby, which Zira sings, Joss Whedon wrote the lyrics, he was approached to contribute to the Lion King script, but turned it down, billy bob thornton was also approached to contribute to the lion king script but turned it down we can't
0: linger on that though we'll have to move on <laughs> because you're saying that the best thing about lion king 2 is that it doesn't feel like a triviality and yet the best thing about the lion king one and a half is that it is self-consciously a triviality a midquel mm. a timon and pumba centric midquel that I haven't seen all of it, Sam. I didn't manage to finish it before we recorded, but I watched a good chunk of this, and it has a really fun kind of anarchic Looney Tunes kind of energy to it that is probably, I mean, it's not a Disney Disney movie, but it feels like it's more playful and irreverent than most Disney films get to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, it came out in 2004. It's post-Shrek. It's post-Emperor's New Groove. It feels quite a bit like the Emperor's New Groove in a lot of ways. So this is basically a retelling of the Lion King story from the point of view of Timon and Pumbaa and you see what they're doing during all the scenes where they're off screen. It's about them looking for a home, basically, and they look in the Pride Lands when the circle of life is kicking off. They look in the elephant graveyard while Scar is singing Be Prepared. They're like accidentally moving through all of these iconic moments, causing things to happen in a way. But also, they're watching the movie with us, in like a Mystery Science Theater 3000 style, like they are sitting in a cinema, watching the movie, pausing it, rewinding it, making fun of the movie. And it's pretty funny. This is a good movie. I would recommend that people watch this movie, which I have not said about any of these director video <laughs> things before. Mm-hmm. So Lion King 2 is the best sequel. This isn't technically a sequel. This is the best Disney spin-off movie by Miles.
0: It was really funny from what I saw. It was just the most distracting thing is that Timon's mum is voiced by Julie Kavner. voices Marge Simpson and she is just doing (laughs) the Marge Simpson voice so I was kind of had this on and I was doing I was like tiny in the house doing some stuff and I was like wait is this still playing this why am I watching the Simpsons I wasn't watching the Simpsons it was still Lion (laughs) King one and a half Timone's mum is Marge Simpson incredible casting
1: all right let's stick with movies lion king 2019 photorealistic movie remake it's bad what do you think ben right
0: okay I, I don't know if i've mentioned this on the podcast before i genuinely i don't know i don't mind this movie i have the position of having seen it once at the cinema it came out when i was having a really crap summer i was just in a bad situation and Lizzie and I needed to just get out of where we were living. Like, we didn't want to be in through the evening. So we were like, let's go to the cinema, Lion King remake is out, let's go see Lion King. And I do think so much of my enjoyment was just because it felt familiar to the original film, but it gave me a warmth and an escape that I needed in that moment. So that is fully caveated in all of those circumstances that I watched it in, it gave me the warmth and they're like, oh yeah, look, it's Simba and Nala and all of this seeing the lion king again my other one thing i will say in this film's favor because i think it gets dunked on a lot and i can understand why but people i think maybe slightly underestimate the characterization that goes into this because it is intentionally stripping away all of the cartooniness in a way that is very different to the original film which really leans into the properties the elastic properties of animation to give you those stylized characters and reactions to things and the way that it uses cinematic language. The one thing that I do think this film does well and people don't necessarily give it credit for is that yes, it makes the lions photorealistic, but I think it channels those reactions, those behaviors into realistic animal behavior. It like finds analogs so that when, I don't know, Simba's looking scared, they make him look like a real scared lion would look or they translate it into actual behaviours but nothing that you're looking at is real and it looks so photorealistic. I think you almost it almost switches your brain off to thinking well, they haven't really done anything with it but they have done it because every single thing that's happening is a choice that they've made to present it that way and I think I'm never going to watch it over the original but I do think it's a really interesting piece of work in taking something that is very stylized and presenting a naturalistic version but the naturalistic choices you're having to make still have to convey emotion through realistic behaviors. That's an interesting idea. Whether it makes for a valuable film that I'm going to return to, I don't know. But I think there's maybe slightly more merit to it than occasionally it's given credit for.
1: Ben, that's a really well put argument and you're completely entitled. to to your opinion. (laughs) Amon, what do you think of the terrible Lion King rumor? Uh, uh, I agree,
2: Ben. That was very well said. At the same time, the thought of somebody happening upon that version of the Lion King before watching the 94 original Lion King makes me very sad because I felt similarly to you in that I didn't hate it, but only because... I loved The Lion King so much and what this 2019 movie is doing is replicating pretty much every story beat of The Lion King that it's impossible for me to hate what I'm watching because I think the original Lion King is a masterpiece. So that is the thing that I was thinking of and because I had this movie so ingrained in my heart and my mind, I found myself thinking about that. As I was watching the 2019 movie. I remember yeah. this very, very clearly. I took my mum to the UK premiere. It was a big thing because Jay-Z and Beyonce were in town. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I remember that being the event. I think Meghan Markle was coming that day, but everyone's waiting for Beyonce. That's how ridiculous Beyonce is. But, yeah, when I talk about the original Lion King with my mum, we still have like, long conversations about it, about how much we love it. Coming out of that cinema, it was like, yeah... It didn't give us the same feelings, the same vibes. And again, a lot of it was very impressive. But so much about The Lion King from my perspective growing up with it is about how it makes you feel. And I remember watching the 2019 movie. It's just, it's not making me feel all the big moments with the score, which is done by Hans Zimmer again, with Simba, with Mufasa, all these big moments. It's not coming close to the impact that I felt and that I still feel. When I watched the original movie. So yeah. With all that being said, Barry Jenkins is making a Mufasa Lion King prequel. I'm very interested in that. Um I get the sense that he feels the way we do about the original. And if there's anybody who could breathe life into that photorealistic version of The Lion King, Barry Jenkins hasn't missed yet. If anybody deserves the benefit of the doubt, it's that guy. So fingers crossed.
1: It's impossible not to be excited for a Barry Jenkins <laughs> Lion King movie. Exactly. And it's difficult to have a bad time with this movie because it's the Lion King, exactly. unless you do start thinking about it in relation to the other one. I get what you're saying about the performances that they're able to achieve with these photorealistic animals, Ben. But that, to me, that's more interesting as a tech demo. Like It's great that they were able to do it. It's great that we have this as like the most convincing photorealistic animation you've ever seen. Like It's fantastic to have that. But is a movie it just falls down because it's not able to achieve that emotional impact that you're talking about, Aron. And that mm. is because of these stilted animal performances. And it's like, it's convincing, but it's not impactful. And also, the performance in an animated movie, as I've kind of already alluded to, is not just the characters. It's everything you see. Mm. And what we don't get in this movie is any of those environmental flourishes any of those special effects flourishes, any of those aesthetic flourishes that we get in the original. When you look at I Just Can't Wait To Be King, it looks real, but it doesn't... L- it, I mean, I've already said this literally, but like, it's not doing the same thing, and the characters are performing fine, but the environment is not performing, it just exists. My God, the massacre be prepared in this movie. The gut, the melody, the change half the lyrics, and with absolutely no disrespect to Chirat for it's just not happening, On top of that, the entire thing's pitch black because they didn't want to have loads of big, crazy, green volcanoes and stuff. And I honestly, I'm glad that they didn't do that because it gives you this really consistently photorealistic movie, which is the only context in which any of this stuff is interesting or good. If they'd have made some of it crazy and weird and and more animated and expressive, then it wouldn't have been what it is, which is still interesting to have as an object that exists. But as a movie to watch and enjoy, it's nothing. It's artless. It's... It's a waste.
0: I will say, though, it does give us a great Beyoncé album, The Gift," which also then span Mm. off into a Beyoncé visual album, Black is King, which is really good. I mean, if you've seen a Beyoncé visual album before, you know that that is a spectacular thing to behold.
2: And I think really
0: interesting, the first (laughs) time a Lion King story has been told from a black creator. Like, this is a story set in Africa using african visual motifs but has primarily been told by white people and the beyonce black is king album and the the film that accompanies it gives you a different perspective on that story which is i think is definitely worth checking out
2: absolutely worth checking out uh, i still listen to the album a couple of times beyonce is a rarity she's one of one and this is just another thing that goes to prove that i love that she pulled in so many different creatives from Africa to help tell the story both on the visual level and with the songs. So yeah, that, that's really, really great.
1: Okay, there's not an enormous amount of Lion King material at the theme parks. They do have several different live shows based on the movie and the Broadway show, including Tale of the Lion King, Celebration of the Lion King, Festival of the Lion King, Celebration of the Festival of the Lion King, Legend of the Lion King, The Legend of the Lion King, and The Lion King, colon, Rhythm of the Pride Lands. Didn't make any of those up. (laughs) You can find them all on YouTube. They exist. (laughs) So let's move into the world of television. So first of all, we have the 1990s Timon and Pumba animated series, which I've already mentioned. Are you guys both fans of that show like you both grew up with that show yeah it
0: was always on on saturday mornings
1: (laughs) yep (laughs) it was an absolute staple so it was this looney tunes style adventure where timon and pumba visit different countries in every episode and and this reflects you know the, the original influence of the looney tunes on disney sidekick characters like this so when you free them from the dramatic plot and the hyper real aesthetic of the lion king then you get this cartoonal anarchy which is really fun to see and there was also They did like a music video of them singing Stand By Me by Benny King, which was always repeated on Saturday mornings. There was this show called Dig It, which we had, which was like Disney's own Saturday morning show where they played all the Disney cartoons. And they were always playing that Stand By Me music video. So there's a place in my heart for that. But the Lion King TV show that we need to talk about. One of my favourite things I have discovered in doing these deep dives on these films, last and Legacies, have any of you seen The Lion Guard or heard of The Lion Guard?
0: Heard of it? Nope. Never seen it. Tear us up. Where are we? What's happening?
1: Okay. The Lion Guard is a TV show for, like, young children from 2016. It's like a Disney Junior TV show. And it is about Simba's second child, Keon okay or kion i can't remember it was a while ago that i watched this it's k-i-o-n so he's kiara's younger brother kiara and some of the other characters from the lion king 2 are in this and kion discovers that he has a superpower a genuine honest to god superpower a magic roar that summons the spirits of his ancestors to attack his enemies and he also gets a sick magic tattoo that just appears When he does this role. And this makes him the destined leader of the Lion Guard. Defenders of the Pride Lands. And he's got to put together a team. And traditionally the Lion Guard have all been lions. But Keon, he's got friends of all different species. So he's mates with a hippo. He's mates with a cheetah. He's mates with a bird of some sort. He's mates (laughs) with a honey badger. Who was apparently raised by Timon and (laughs) Pumbaa. What? and they come together they're the lion Guard, baby they're going to defend the pride lands <laughs> who they're going to defend the pride lands from all sorts obviously there's hyenas crocodiles and snakes and there's one memorable encounter with the villains from the lion king 2 who appear in one episode to establish where we are in the timeline this is after the first half of the lion king 2 when kiara and kovu were kids and kovu's now estranged from the pride lands anyway the point that i'm trying to make is that this is a show that is incredibly dense with lore. right this is a show that has the mythology of a high fantasy series it expands the mythos of the lion king world in ways in which you never thought possible so we find out that the previous leader of the lion guard was scar himself okay because I, I guess that's how it works it's like the monarch's <laughs> younger sibling So Prince Harry will be the leader of the Lion Guard in this situation or actually currently it will be Prince Andrew We don't need to think about that Scar was the previous leader. He had the power of the roar of elders Which is what it's called and he tried to use the roar and the Lion Guard to usurp Mufasa Like way before the events of the original Lion King He tried to rally the Lion Guard against Mufasa, but they refused so he killed them all with the magic roar And he lost his power in the process because he used it for evil instead of good, right? And this is all just kind of background lore bubbling up through Season 1. In Season 2, the Lion Guard's enemies all come together to resurrect Scar as an evil fire spirit voiced by David Oyelowo. What? (laughs) It's just like, this is like a blockbuster. This is like epic Fantasy storytelling oh on a God. grand scale. Supernatural powers, evil spirits. So then, like the rest of the show is about, or the rest of that season is about them fighting this evil fire spirit of Scar who, David a. yellow, he's singing songs and everything. And then, when they finally defeat Scar, they go on a quest to a far-flung land where they need to find the Tree of Life for some reason, I can't remember. But the reason for this, meta-narratively, is that explains their absence during the second half of The Lion King 2. They go to great pains to explain how this fits into the established Lion King chronology in a way that my nerdy self appreciates incredibly most of it is set in between the first and second halves of the lion king 2 then they go away and that's why we don't hear about them during the last half of the lion king 2 and then they come back in the final episodes of the lion guard to find Kovu is now married to kiara and th- it's this whole new integrated lion community that we'll get at the end of the lion king 2 I-, I i have a lot of time for this show i literally had a lot of time for this show <laughs> i spent hours watching this i didn't watch every single episode there are so many But I went on, like, the Wikipedia page and I basically control and F'd words like SCAR to find the ones that were, like, important to the lore, to the mythos. And I just got really swept up in this show that, let me stress, is aimed at, like, four-year-olds. Amazing. (laughs) Because most of the episodes are, like... This character's gonna learn why Lion is wrong, or this character's gonna learn like how to share with his friends. It's like four babies. But then every so often they integrate this insane like high fantasy story. Oh man,
0: the Lion Guard. There you go. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> oh, take a breath. So we are, I think, nearly at the end of the circle of this podcast, but very briefly, <laughs> there's a stage show, which is a big deal and i have not seen the lion king musical because it is very expensive and the tickets are very very rarely (laughs) offered at a cheaper price apparently it's spectacular i don't think any of us have seen it right no we should do that well we should have done that a week ago but now we (laughs)
1: should do that we should have a a lad's trip to the uh the lion king show but this is a big deal like this is still a big deal it's the highest grossing broadway show of all time 1.6 billion on broadway over 8 billion worldwide this is like the the biggest show it's the biggest thing and it's really cool like i'm sure most people know vaguely what it is but it's directed by julie timor who at the time was like an avant-garde interpreter of opera and shakespeare they needed someone who could think outside the box in terms of how do we bring this show that's entirely about lions and animals to life On a broadway stage and what she came up with was this style of puppetry and costume and that she calls double event where you can always see the puppeteer or the performer operating the puppets and wearing the costumes so like the lion characters just have big masks on their head with lions on them but you can see their entire head beneath it so you're getting the human performance and you're getting the character as well, which is really cool because it makes the work of the puppeteer visible, which is contrary to like the general Disney ethos in these movies of making Labour invisible, or even in the theme parks. They don't want you to think about how something was made, they just want you to be engrossed in it and immersed in it. But in this show, the performers are the magic, and that's just something new that Tamar brought to the table with this thing. Oh, man. Even though I haven't seen it. I'm sure it's great.
0: I really need to see this one day. Well, we should go, we should wrap this up cook up some kind of harebrained scheme that we can earn loads and loads of money, and then we can maybe afford one ticket for The Lion King, (laughs) we'll decide who goes in an epic game of rock, paper, scissors. Pride rock, paper, scissors. I'm going to win. Oh, there we go. (laughs) And that is it for this week's epic, mega bumper-sized class Listeners, this is as big as it's going to get. This is probably as big an episode as we're ever going to do. Uh, and Amon, it's been a joy to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us. Have you enjoyed finally getting to be in the hallowed halls of Disney Tea? I've
2: hated every moment. It's been it's been awful. No, I'm joking. No. <laughs> you hated
1: some moments, though, didn't you? You hated some of my opinions. <laughs>
2: no, no, no. Honestly, very, very interesting, and it made me think about this film not to the degree that i love it any less than i did but it definitely i've not heard some of the stuff arguments that, that you said so kudos to you on that for reals but uh, yeah now i i've really enjoyed diving deep into this film as i say i love it with my whole heart uh so it's always fun getting to chat about something which holds that sort of place in your movie going journey thank you so much for having me on i appreciate it
0: And people can find you at many, many places on the internet and other podcasts, etc. Where can people find your stuff?
2: Yes, I am at Amon Woman on Twitter and at Amon Woman on Instagram. Uh, You can find me on the Fate to Black podcast every week, every Sunday, an episode with uh, my co-hosts Clarice Glockery and Hannah Flint. Uh, You can find me on the Empire podcast and on the Empire Spoiler Special podcast. I do that too. And I'm in the Empire mag. Uh, Every month I got column... Black and Focus and uh, I also sort of do other bits and bobs typically in each issue.
0: So yeah, I'm around. Go find him on. <laughs> He's got loads of great opinions and lovely podcast outlets and all sorts. Join us again then for our next seminar as we peek just around the riverbend in a very different Disney attempt to recontextualize American history in Pocahontas, a film that's also gonna bring us back to the brink of Cats and Begsit. Whatever we're calling that. Get, get some Brexit? Captain... Some... It sounds too much like Captain Brexit. But anyway, <laughs> that's all to come next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll serve you up a delicious platter of freshly caught grubs. And we'll even let you have the really juicy red ones. Oh, they look so good. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Amon. Peace. And it's goodbye from me. Okay, so first up, we're gonna hustle somebody, right? Then we get the money, and then we get in the theatre, and then it'll be too late to kick us out, and then we'll enjoy the show. Maybe we have to get on stage. Maybe we have to become puppeteers to finally get to the Lion King musical. Okay, this is coming together, I like it. See you guys at the show. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.